Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Cathern, and today on the podcast, we have Graham Holford. Graham introduces himself, so I'm not going to do that for him. I would like to point out that you're going to get peak film snob, film student, Robert Cathern on this episode. I recorded this podcast with Graham right before I shot my thesis film, and shooting my thesis film gave me a serious dose of humility while trying to film and edit action. So you're going to get a glimpse of uh, pre-failure Robert in this, and uh, I have learned my lesson. I'm going to be a lot more careful before leveling criticism at any filmmaker who has successfully produced a feature. I also edited this particular conversation down by a good 40 minutes because Graham and I hung out for a long time. Uh, So if you notice any gaps in the recording, that is an edit point. Please enjoy. So why don't you introduce yourself, Graham? Um, I'm Graham. I'm a second year MFA filmmaker. I'm from England in case you hadn't worked that out already. You're not putting on a voice? I'm not putting on a voice. Not actually from Wisconsin. That'd be great, wouldn't it? If I just turn around and be like, by the way, guys, I'm a Yank. But then a Yank would never say that. Is that what they call us over uh, across the pond? Yeah, it's kind of like, it's like the xenophobic term that's not too bad. It's like the Aussies call us Poms. And we're constantly told... P- poms? Like, like P-O-M. Like don't pomegranate? Pom- yeah. Pom-poms like a cheerleader? I don't know why we're called Poms, but we're told it's not offensive. So we're not allowed to take offense. What but do you call Aussies? Aussies? Ah, oh, I don't want to say that. We, we, got, we got a euphemism for them. Okay. You know, we you know, know how that country started. <laughs> so, right. you know, before they, you know, yeah, I will stay away from what we call Aussies. Okay. They're very good at cricket and rugby. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> so you watched Creed 2 the other day? Uh, today, actually. What do you think? Creed. So, okay, so as far as... Uh, boxing films go I'm not going to say that I'm an expert and that I've seen every single one of them and know what I'm talking about yeah it's all all subjective I will say that Creed the first of the rebooted kind of or the passing of the torch if you will Mm. I loved I really loved it I sat on that film for three years before watching it Mm. for no good reason Mm. mostly because it was like everyone's talking about how great it is it was difficult to believe it was really because I thought it was like a context of it's not that bad and right. so I'm just I, I don't play that game. I was I was really worried that it would be something that people were giving good reviews to because it was better than they expected. Exactly. Which I think happens a lot. Yeah, definitely. So I I loved Creed and I come into this and you see the previews and you're like, "Oh, it's just like Rocky 4, but a new mm. generation." And so I went in to watch it and I, I was one of two people in the theater, which was great. Yeah. No one was talking. I didn't have to see any cell phone screens. Yeah. It was amazing. Both both should be federally illegal, by the way. I think so, too. Uh, there's a great Rick and Morty episode where they sacrifice someone who... And there's a placard on his chest that says, Movie Talker. Oh. <laughs> you know, the first film I saw in Athens, Ohio, it was a film called Lady Macbeth. And it's a very, like, still, dark, moody film. So there's a lot of silence. And I was it was me and two sort of elderly... Midwestern women so they were quite frumpy and they were wearing lots of OU stuff and there was moments of like quite quite nasty visceral violence and there's these women just going well that's not very good 
No fucking talking all the way through the film. I was looking at them like, are you are you serious? There's something I think about um, once you get past the age of sixty, and this is entirely conjecture. Yeah, you don't care. Yeah, what the youngins think of you. Yeah, I can't wait. So when I went to see Phantom Thread mm. in theaters, packed house, barely found a seat. There's a couple behind me, talking, the entire time, asking <sighs> each other questions saying things that they heard in interviews and isn't isn't Anderson wonderful and oh Daniel Day Lewis this and what did he say? What it what? What? Ugh. The whole film. Murder. Very frustrating. Yeah. Murderous thoughts definitely crept into my mind. But watching Creed two and aware of the mythology of the Rocky franchise mm. and the you know the whole generational thing of, you know, Apollo Creed's son Adonis, mm -hmm. Apollo was killed by Ivan Drago. I went in knowing all that and was very, very excited. And it hits every single emotional father-son beat mm -hmm. that it's supposed to hit. Mm -hmm. It hits beautifully. It hits everything perfectly. Stallone's in this? Stallone is in this. Right. He actually said this was his last appearance as Rocky Balboa. I believe it when I see it. Well, anyway. yeah. Well, <laughs> even when he walks, when he fir you first see him on screen, like I immediately start tearing up because he's just such a great character. I mean, he he's become like in in Creed. I noticed it, and he was in some really awful film with Robert De Niro called like The Last Fight or The Last Match or something. And Grudge Match. Grudge Match. Was yeah. it any good? No, it's awful. But Stallone, <laughs> he he he's he's underrated, I think, as a stage as a screen presence for me, because I always thought he was just that muscles guy. But no, he's got a real presence, and it's really heartbreaking in Creed, the first one. Yeah, absolutely. So Creed Two hits all the emotional beats but is not terribly well directed. Mm, well, it's not the same guy. It's not it? Ryan Coogler. Yeah. Now, I haven't seen Fruitvale Station. That's been, everyone tells me I need to watch it. Yafit's been giving me a really hard time about not having seen it. I have a friend who's got a very big problem with that film. Is the the uh, main character, Michael B. Jordan's in it again. Mm -hmm. And he, it's a true story, I think. I believe so. And it's so heavy-handed on the sort of Jesus-like imagery or hinting mm -hmm. that you know you know the problems with film like direction in the film is that when you feel manipulated you're out of it yeah, apparently if, if you're aware of it that's what problem my mate had but who am I to say this everyone loves Fruitvale Station so right anyway so I'm watching Creed 2 and there are these scenes and I can having studied screenwriting having watched a bunch of movies having taken the same classes you've taken mm. I can see where things are going, and I know what needs to happen to set up, set things up. You know, the, all the things need to get tied up. And, right, but yeah. but then there were these moments where I, the point of the scene had been reached, and then it went on for three more minutes. And I was like, whoa, uh, why mm. why did that take so long? Um, the boxing scenes were not nearly as dynamic as the first Creed, which mm. I thought had some pretty masterful camera work. They, um, the uh, first sort of big fight. Um, you know where it's a single take and they're just following yeah. and they go for a round of a half in real time I didn't spot that the first time it's, that is one of the most remarkable that, that, and the fact, the fact that the punches looked like they were landing Yeah, the acting was great yeah. and this is something that so it basically it had all the components of like a good movie but now that I, I'm starting to notice you know, the deeper into film school I get um, directing decisions Mm -hmm. And then I'm thinking, why is this in a wide shot? Mm. Why didn't we frame this a little bit differently? Why are we lingering? Why didn't we cut earlier? You know, wh why is this juxtaposed so awkwardly? Um, 
just a bunch of those things kept occurring to me in between the heartbreaking moments where I was like really emotionally invested. So I, I kept taking me out because it didn't have the kind of seamless direction that Creed did. Now, I think it's also, I think it might be the guy's first feature. I'd have to look it up, but well, anyway, yeah. it's not, it, so worth checking out, yes. Mm -hmm. Highly recommended, no. Yeah, I think if it springs up on Netflix, I'll give it a go. Um, but I, you know, when I realized it wasn't the same director, I was a little less enticed by it. Mm -hmm. um, because the things that I noticed about Creed, the first one, the second time I watched it, um, Okay, so one thing I really wanted to talk about was the dude cast a lot of actual fighters, and that's a big risk because they can't act. And the main antagonist... Well, well that's not, not very fair. It's not fair, but it's also true, <laughs> so fuck it. Um, but, you know, like, t so the, 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 the Liverpudlian guy that he, he's fighting is a real fighter, Tony Bellew. He just re retired recently. And it was a brilliant directorial decision because, yes, he can't do the sort of acting stuff but what he can do is talking shit at press conferences staring someone down you know all the things that a boxer does so the performance related things that were necessary to sell the idea of this guy being a boxer correct not necessarily a dynamic character exactly okay. and that was a really ballsy thing to do and it worked it worked really really well he's got Andre Ward in that he's the first guy that he fights that uh, knocks Creed down mm -hmm. and in that that amazing single well what looks like a single take of a round and a half I um, think that's a single take is it actually I, a single take I, I'm pretty sure it is because if you watch Shit. it back <laughs> I can't see any hidden cuts in it but I was looking because I was like going back yeah it's to, I'm not the most discerning of guys and, and, and it's easier these days with computers sure, to sure. fake anything but I'm pretty sure that's one take. That is that is balls, <laughs> that guy. Because, and the guy that he's fighting in it is a is a real Philly fighter called Gabe Rosado. Okay. Um, again, an amazing attention to detail, and there's this the way that fighters carry themselves is a very specific thing. If you're just a layman or a casual boxing fan or not a boxing fan at all, you can't spot it. But you know, when you're really invested you can spot it and you're like this guy this director really paid attention to the world and you juxtapose that with something like Southpaw have you seen Southpaw? I have not seen Southpaw you know it's the Jake Jared Hall I didn't see it because you told me not to see it it's fucking awful <laughs> it's dreadful this is how much they get it wrong it's called Southpaw and in the poster Jake Jared Hall is standing at Orthodox oh, so you, right you'd there. think someone would catch that on exactly the way exactly and they get um all the tropes that I, I, so like you were saying, you weren't really particularly invested in Rocky. You know, did you grow up with it at all? I the first the first Rocky. No, I I would I would say that. Okay, so there were three films, my my dad showed me mm. that I think were part of my manly education. Yes, if you will, very important. Like you have yeah. to see these films. Um, the first one he made me watch was The Godfather. Solid. Uh, second one he made me watch was The Magnificent Seven. Hmm. Okay. Which is another great film. And the mm. third one was Rocky. Because he grew up outside of Philly. Yeah, you're I, a kind of a Philly guy, right? I mean, I, I'm I, I claim Philly. I lived there for seven years. Yeah, yeah. Um I always went to Philly's games when I was a kid, you know, saw the Eagles. Uh I I've eaten cheesesteaks in many places. Yeah. And you also are quite snotty <laughs> about cheesesteaks, I've noticed. So, you know, this is a Philly thing. I have my preference. I have my preference. I try yeah. not to be too snooty about it. Anyway, um, and Rocky was the third one. So 
when you watch Rocky with someone who's from Philly or the Philadelphia area mm. from that generation, you they don't stop talking the entire movie because they're telling you what every filming location is. <laughs> so, yeah. So my my edu- my like relationship to Rocky was like you know someday like like when you grow up in the country and you're near a big city but you don't live there, every time you cross the bridge. I remember this just like amazing feeling of excitement, like, oh my God, we're gonna mm. go to Philadelphia. Like, mm. And we used to always go shopping for Christmas. Like the week before Christmas, my dad would take us to South Street, basically to get us out of our mother's hair. Mm. And uh, we'd like shop for little knickknacks for, because I'm one of six kids. So I was gonna say, you're a gaggle, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so imagine like six Catherine kids following my dad around South Street. But uh, so for me, the real excitement when I started, when I moved to Philly, was then recognizing locations from yeah. Rocky being like, oh, well, the Italian market looks a lot different yeah, since yeah. 1976 or whenever Rocky came out. And what I really enjoyed about Creed is that they paid attention to the Philly like architecture mm. and areas like like the the gym he trains at. I'm, it's like on Front Street like up near Kensington. Kensington is the is the hood, is the neighborhood, right? That's where uh, Eddie Alvarez comes from. Yeah, and it's like it's Danny like Garcia, I think, comes from there as is well. Is Eddie from? Yeah, I guess I guess you would. No, be, yeah. he's from. Yeah, he rep. There's a great um, interview of him and Ariel Helwani. You're going to get less listeners because we're so inside <laughs> baseball here. But um, there's a great interview of uh, Eddie Alvarez and Ariel Helwani walking up and down Kensington. There's a couple of details that are really fascinating, and you really know that Eddie's from there couple of things he actually had the foresight to call the police and say we're doing this in this area can we have an escort so either end of where they're walking there's a, a, a uniformed policeman really and they're walking around Kensington and there's a bunch of people like coming up and like oh Eddie I used to know him when he was a kid or I used to sell him new t-shirts and like he, he's well known and then there's a kid a blonde white skinny kid and he's got a backpack and he's just walking around Kensington and Ariel looks at him and he's like what sort of like middle class looking guy here and Eddie goes he's stuck he's like what does stuck mean it's like he's a heroin addict so he tried a couple of opiates at a party then he went to the herd and he picked up a few times and now he's stuck I was like just to have that sort of little wow. lingo really proved that Eddie knew you know knew the hood man um, well that's how it happens yeah big time yeah that's how it happens yeah but uh, so they they picked some great locations mm. to film in. Well, I'm, I noticed the dirt bike thing. Yeah, the dirt bikes and the four wheelers. I almost got hit by a guy on a dirt bike when I was crossing uh, 38th Street back mm. when I lived in University City. And, like, rolled my window down and was, like, yelled at the kid and, you know, rides off. And then I, and then I was just like, well, you know, it is what it is. I didn't get hit. Yeah. It could have yeah. been worse. It could have been far worse. But there's a huge – I mean, the, the boxing tradition in Philly is huge. Like, there's actually a statue – of a boxer in South Philly, right near uh, on Passion. Mm. It's an incredible uh, city. It's it's you know it gave us, you know, the relationship that Rocky has with the boxing world is always a kind of a funny one to me because it's complete fantasy, mm-hmm. but it inspired many people to become boxers. And isn't there like a statue of? Stallone? There's a Rocky statue at the foot of the art museum steps. Isn't that incredible? That you never get that it in is. Europe. That would just not. What do you get in Europe? Old. If white fuckers that <laughs> own loads of slaves <laughs> wait so if it's not 500 years old no one cares doesn't count yeah really it, it, i mean you go to london and they have these blue plaques everywhere like charles dickens was born here you know like real cultural heavyweights mm-hmm. um 
And it's something when you come to America and you go to places like uh, New Orleans or, or New York City or parts of Philly, like, you know, like the old East Coast former sort of... Original colonies? Yeah, yeah. That You can tell that the, these buildings have existed for more than a couple of hundred years. But then when you go somewhere like Texas, where everything's just been around for about five minutes, yeah. and it's massive. You realize that um, when you go back home, my girlfriend kept on pointing out, she was like, everything's so small and cute and old. Small and cute and old. Right here, baby. But um, So much for the glory of the British Empire. Right? <laughs> yeah, oh, mate, don't get me started on that. Um, so, yeah, you know, Philadelphia has this sort of fantastical relationship with boxing, but then, you know, it also gave us people like Bernard Hopkins, um, Joe Frazier oh, yeah. was based in Philly, right? Mm-hmm. I think he lived in yep. Philly until he died. Well, he's in the first Rocky. Is he? Yeah. He comes out and they're like, you know, heavy, former heavyweight champion, Joe Frazier. And like originally in the script. Was it, he punchy? Because he, he was real punchy at the end of his life. I, I don't know. I mean, that was in the 70s. Yeah. So it can't have been too far from the end of his career. Right? He came out like, in a, I think it's a, he's in a turquoise suit. and, and Oh, really? And he, and a, what originally was going to be, because if you read this, um, so for a screenplay uh, class with Natasha, she had us read the Rocky screenplay, and then we broke down the film relative to the screenplay to mark the differences. We didn't do that. That'd have been a good exercise. Which was which was great. So, one of the things that he had written for that final scene was that there were going to be, in, in order to pay homage to the tradition of heavyweight boxing, he was going to have a bunch of former heavyweight champions come out and be announced as mm. Rocky is like you know praying mm. in the locker room, and they were only able to get Joe Frazier apparently, because which, which worked because it was yeah he's yeah. a Philly guy. So, huh, I did not know that. Yeah. I suppose 76 was, um, Ali was still around in those days. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that period of heavyweight boxing was, you know, I mean, maybe now we're getting a sort of golden age of heavyweight boxing. Are we? Yes, definitely. And, you know, one, I don't follow boxing the way you do, but. But one of the things that I thought was interesting about, you know, the, the, the fight, the combat world and the film world is that in spite of us talking about Rocky and a lot of like, we'll probably mention a couple of really good films that are either to do with, you know, kickboxing, boxing or MMA. I do feel like it's an underserved subject because it's so nutritious of amazing characters. And yet all the, most of the fight films that we get fed with are the quite schlocky rise, fall, rise. Well, who's on your t-shirt right now? I got Joe Lewis. Right. So, you know, uh, you know, probably had a, a hundred TV movies made about his life, you know. And when the truth of it is, is that he died penniless from the booze hound, you know, that's the, the <sighs> that's what happens. Yeah. And, you know, right now, I mean, we've got um, a few extremely compelling characters in the heavyweight division, like Tyson Fury is um, a traveler. We call them gypsies, which I think- Yeah, tell us a little bit about that, because, okay, just a little context. I've seen Snatch, mm. the Guy Ritchie film, probably 20 times. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and I watched the Tyson Fury appearance on Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm. And I also saw the film Knuckle. Yeah. So how does all that tie in together? Give us some... For, for those listening who know nothing about anything related to combat, tell us a little bit about the UK, what travelers are, what they're associated with, how that ties into boxing, and if we can trust Guy Ritchie to give us an accurate portrayal well, <laughs> by casting Brad Pitt. Well, I mean, it was genius because it was so <laughs> out there. Um, so who the travelers are to UK society. So 
they are um, often they you know they're, they're not just Irish they can be sort of Roman Gypsy um, I actually was you know you're saying you were from the country just outside the city well that's exactly what I was to London so what, what town are you from again I'm from like a few towns in South Buckinghamshire so I'm about 40 minutes northwest of central London Okay. So, like, my, the big towns would be places like High Wycombe or Aylesbury, which are sort of satellite towns outside of the city, commuter communities towards okay. London. And we'd have a lot of these communities come up, and there would always be these Irish kids, and they were super religious, super loved their family. They'd turn up to our, our school, they'd be there for half a term, and then disappear, and you'd never see them again. So, I actually knew of these people. In fact, we actually had a bit of an incident with a couple of them. And, uh, what, what kind of incident? Like an actual fight? Yeah. So what happened was um, we were playing. We were like 15 years old, and we were playing. It was during the Easter holidays, and we were playing um, cricket in the uh, playground of our school. That's how English we were. And as we were playing cricket, there was these three, you know, 12 year olds just walking past us, and my friend went, "Oh, hello!" And the little this little Irish kid with tartan trousers, black shoes, and a little sort of what do you call those stringy things that come from your collar a tie no 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 <laughs> um like cowboys have them bolo bolo tie yeah yeah i think something it was like something. that yeah one of these and he goes you can take your hello and you can stick it up your hole and then he just walks away and we all start bursting out laughing and we're like what we've got cricket bats and we're twice your size we'll fuck you up like what why did you do that He's like, come on, gives you a fight, gives you a fight, and he starts like throwing out jabs at us. And, and this is before Conor McGregor was an international th- phenom. This is fifteen years before Conor McGregor was around, and eventually he starts scrapping with my mate's little brother. And my mate's little brother was a lot stronger, but he never fought before. And this kid just gives him a like an overhand right, bang right on his nose, starts bleeding. He doesn't know what's going on, starts crying, and then runs home. And we're like, oh well, that wasn't very good. Then we go into town and then we see a bunch of girls that were a couple of years ahead of us at school scrapping with another bunch of girls, hairs being dragged back down alleys of, you know, it's bedlam. And then a bunch of older kids are coming down and they're like, well, who's been playing with us, playing, you know, and they just want to fight everyone. And then the police are coming up to us saying, like, don't mess with these people because they will take it to a level that you don't understand. So just leave them alone. And that was my first interaction with them. So where does Tyson Fury fit in all of this? Yeah, He's part of that community. And the community seems to be defined by a couple of things. Highly religious, usually Catholic, mm-hmm. fighting people, very big on the honor code, can't disrespect them, very hardworking people, um, and they're usually not treated very well by the government and the society around them because they choose to move around. Mm-hmm. And that's something that our society doesn't really engage with very well. And this past 10 years, we've had a lot of people from the Travelers communities become part of the British amateur boxing scene and the professional boxing scene. And now they've become real stars. And you've got someone like Tyson Fury, who I think is an incredibly compelling character because... Is he like six foot nine or something? Six foot nine. Good he's Lord. A, he's an artist in the ring. Because he boxes, he doesn't hit like smash people. He sticks and moves, mm. and he's six foot nine and two hundred and forty pounds when he's in shape. <laughs> and he's an amazing talker. He's like a preacher. Mm-hmm. He gave his eight million dollar purse to charity really? after his last fight. Wow! 
Um, the whole thing? The whole thing. I mean, that's what they're saying. Who knows the truth, really? But, wow. you know, also, <laughs> he is a vicious homophobe. Is he really? And an anti-Semite. Okay. <laughs> He's convinced of a Zionist conspiracy that's running the world. And he said things like, when you legalize gay marriage, that's the next step to Armageddon. So we're talking about that style huh. stuff. I, I never was that worried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's chill. <laughs> I, I never, yeah, no, I, no. I just, I just remember him being on Rogan's podcast and saying, like, and I'm not even going to try to do his accent. Um, you know what got me through it? God. Mm. He just keeps saying God over and over again. Yeah. And, you know, hey, cool. The, uh, so traveler is the polite word. Yeah, I mean, there is a derogatory term, like jippo. I've heard, I've heard them. that. And then yeah. I've heard, is pikey the same thing? Is pikey, that? yeah. Pikey is like the N word. Oh, I, I'm sorry for saying that. No, it's uh, fine. On this broadcast, that it's, was not... Uh, you know, it was fine. You get you get the you get the the P pass for now because you were ignorant to it. Okay, but, yeah, um, I'm an ignorant American. Please forgive me, my uh, traveling audience. I'm it's sure there are many, <laughs> <laughs> but they they they're, they're very interesting part of society because they they don't vibe well with, with the rest of the country. But it seems like by choice. Yeah, I mean they they they, they sort of it's a get tribal keep, identity that they're very yeah invested in protecting. Yeah, and they they um, often. It's difficult to characterize these people because you know who really knows anything. But they often get married very young. Okay. They stick to them at their own. Um, their literacy for the rest of the country is quite low. Well, if you're generally. moving all the time, I mean, you can exactly, exactly. And so right. we'd have these kids that would be part of our class for half a term. They'd never do the homework. They would, uh, you know, neither did I. Just for the record. But <laughs> how did you get into graduate school, Graham? Mate, all charm and <laughs> blagging. Um, but you know, and they were heavily religious. They loved their families, so they'd always make cards of saying how much they loved their mum and things like that. And mm -hmm. you know, they would only. You know, and again, the men, the men are very masculine. There was a man's place, so it's a very sort of patriarchal thing, as I remember it. Maybe it's changed, but uh, you know, it, it it's surprising to me that it took as long as now to have because he's not the only guy that's a traveller that's like a high end of European boxing. Mm -hmm. You got uh, Billy Joe Saunders, he was a world champ. Andy Lee, uh, just retired recently. Um, there's a lot of them. And again, Tyson Fury kind of picks at a bit of a scab of British society that we don't really like to talk about. Because he's so successful? Because he's successful, because he's compelling. But he's also, you know, it's easy for the BBC to ignore him because of his homophobia and because of his anti-Semitic comments. I would venture to say if he was asked again about these things, he would probably say, hey, I didn't mean it this way, I meant it that way. Mm -hmm. But of course, the sort of world we live in nowadays is it's difficult to, people just don't forgive. No, and, and the, well, I heard something really interesting recently where someone said that uh, the problem with the uh, politically correct speech is that it's not actually a system of rules that govern proper etiquette mm. it's a system of taboos that get you crushed wow which i thought was a really fascinating way to to put it so and you don't know what the taboo is until you break it and you're 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 pilloried in, in the in the media mm. which um you know like my insensitive use of the p word uh, just yeah now. like how would i possibly know unless i've done my research but but the accepted etiquette is mm. not something that's actually um 
been settled. No. But then you have people that have a really loud voice who are willing to try to shut these things down. I think it's great that someone like Tyson Fury has the kind of profile that he does, considering that he doesn't play by the rules and that he has some unsavory characteristics, which we all do. But this is the thing. People (laughs) dislike complexity, you know. And, you know, I'm not a fan of what you said about, you know, (laughs) the Zionist conspiracy and the homophobia. Um and and I believe I mean he's also manic depressive that put on 150 pounds got really into serious coke. cocaine problems yeah too, right? coke yeah. booze he's a talker lots of microphones around you know like these things can you know you can be caught out and it's not necessarily what you be, what you actually think mm-hmm. um, but I put up a post when Tyson Fury had his fight with Deontay Wilder a couple of weeks ago and a friend of mine was like oh yeah but he said all this about gay people and, blah, blah, blah. and I was like well we should probably give him a pass because man depressive very famous probably said some stuff that he didn't mean and he did all of this really amazing you know uh, altruistic acts mm-hmm. and also he's done the classic boxing thing of coming back and right you know which are, are the movies that uh, you know so like when I first asked you to come on the podcast mm. which was I don't know I think I mentioned it probably to you like a year ago. Yeah, probably, yeah. But it also always takes me like six months to actually get these podcasts out because mm. I have other things I'm working on. Um, I asked you to give me a list of films to watch. Mm, mm. And I had only seen of the ones you recommended, Raging Bull. Mm. Which seems to be the, other than that, I mean, Rocky is, you get Rocky, you get Raging Bull, those are the ones everyone knows about. Yeah, and, and they're, they're a, a spectrum, you know, because Rocky's uh, fall rise, if I remember it rightly, you know, because he's down and out, he's nearly retired, and then he gets this amazing chance to fight Apollo Creed. and mm. It's the ultimate underdog fairy tale. Yeah, and uh, Raging Bull is, is, you know, a completely different approach. He's character-driven, his career is almost periphery. You know, it's about a... a per- it, it's about um, a guy who has no self-esteem and his his only real ability in the ring is to take punishment and that's used as a sort of analogy for the rest of his life mm-hmm. and you know as much as I'm a big fight fan and obviously trying this film game uh, one would think that I love the sort of Rocky stuff but I really don't because I think he does quite a bit of a the, the, the tropes you know you think it, it doesn't reflect accurately on boxing? Well, I mean, we know it doesn't accurately reflect on Yeah, boxing. well, it's just, I think, it, I just think that there's, there's, when people think of a boxing film, it's usually fall and then rise and then, you know, get out of town. And so, like, there are a couple of, like, recent films that have started off really well, but then within the last 20 minutes, you know where it's going. Mm-hmm. And I find that really disappointing because it's a, you know, I just mentioned one character, Tyson Fury, but you know, being a pretty big fight fan, there are a plethora of incredibly interesting people. It's a really nutritious world for character and all these different stories. Um, I have one idea of the film. There's a guy called Billy Joe Saunders, who's also a member of the Traveller community, and everywhere he goes, his little son's with him. So he's got a fight, and he's at the weigh-in. So they both weighed in. Billy Joe Saunders is a white English guy and he's fighting an African-American guy. And his son is in between them. And his son turns around and punches the American guy in 
the bulls after weighing in. <laughs> it's hilarious. And then the English guy, he wins the fight, and then the son apologizes to him uh, afterwards. Uh, and I, he's, the son is always around Billy Joe Saunders, and so he looks at this idol who's winning everything and behaving really badly, talking shit, um, irritating people, you know, just being really badly behaved. And there's his son who's just like, this is how you succeed, is just by being a complete cunt to everyone mm-hmm. and then embarrassing them in the ring. And that's like a really destructive thing. And I thought that was interesting. You never see that. And I think that there's a thousand stories like that that could be told in that That's interesting. World. So, I mean, are you going to make a boxing film? Is that in your... Well, you don't spend too much, this, as much time as I do following it and then some stories arrive I don't think anytime soon mm-hmm. because I feel like you're pretty it, close to it too yeah like I heard I heard that Scorsese doesn't even like boxing he didn't want to make the film which which to me is is at first I, it was off-putting to hear that mm. but then when I started thinking about it and re after re-watching it for the purposes of this mm. podcast I was thinking like oh well it's not even really the, the film's not about boxing no and it does a good service to to boxing. Every fight is different. For one, they're mm. choreographed very differently. They're shot very differently, mm. and 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 they work with. I mean, that film is, is so so wonderfully written because the way the fights happen in the film. Mm. I think we have, that is. we have a Hungarian <laughs> in our midst. Oh dear! But uh, if you. Um, the way the way the film uh, the way the the fights are spread out and then what is happening leading up to the fight mm. is so important to understand. Like the 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 fights are almost like punctuation marks yes. on the emotional beats. Yeah. They're not the point of the film. So by the end of it, you know when he's completely washed up and and he's lost everything, mm. you don't need a fight to sell that because th- the fights have already happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't need a great climactic fight because the point of the character is the decline. It's not the it's not the victorious triumphant kind of we beat the odds. I mean, it, it's a really um, so uh, for anyone who doesn't know what we're doing, we have this uh, class in the second year called Art of Editing, where we have to break down um, uh, a, uh, a dialogue scene and a uh, montage scene. Um, and you have to go cut by cut and then break it down, motion pass, eye trace, all that shit. Uh, and I did the scene, the you fuck my wife scene, just after he wins the belt. Such and, a great scene. Oh my god! I mean that. I mean that class really is transformative because I feel like I've got a third eye now. Anyway, um, so before that scene happens, you have Jake smiling and Joe Lewis is kissing on the cheek and then he's lifting the bell and there's the snap, snap, snap and the bell's ringing and you know finally he's got the title and everyone thinks it's going to be fine and then cut to a sitting room, broken TV, his belly's. You know, inflamed from beer and eating sandwiches and being Italian. Sorry, Italian people. Um, and That's one of my favorite things Joe Pesci says to him is like, "Chew up the steak and spit it out, <laughs> mate." <laughs> through watching this film a thousand times, I have now realized that Joe Pesci might be the funniest man in cinema. Oh man, he's be- great! Because there's a scene where. Uh, uh, he loses a close decision, and they're like, "I don't know why I gotta do it." And it's like, "Well, they're sick because their mothers take it up the fucking ass." It's so good. But anyway, like, and then you have, so you have him winning the title, and then you cut to the next scene where he's obsessed with his wife's, you know, supposed infidelity, 
Um, and so you, you knew that moment of triumph was a false moment. Mm-hmm. And you knew that it didn't really matter what happened in his career. That's not really going to save him. And I thought that was a very, you know, it, it really resonates. But also, it's very truthful about boxing. Because you have a scene just before he does the title uh, fight where he's being a complete cunt to everyone. And there's that moment where he's like, oh, you know, you chill and then you spit it out. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, he's cutting weight. Yeah. And so you imagine Jake LaMotta, he's already not a nice chap, cutting weight. <laughs> That's a boxer's life. And there's a ton of details that if you are interested in the fights, you'd, you'd spot it again. And one of my best friends back in... Um, my old life before I was here is a huge boxing fan, much bigger than I am. And he's always says, Raging Bull is the boxer's life. That's the, that's the film. Really? Yeah. Much more than Rocky. And, you know, I'm not ragging on Rocky. How dare I do that? But, um, you know, the sort of nuts and bolts of a boxer's life. You know, well, let's talk about Requiem for a Heavyweight. Sure. That one kind of, that recommendation came out of nowhere because I wasn't, I never uh, it's heard been of it. a while since I've watched that film, so I might get a detail wrong well, too. But. Well, it's okay. So it's Anthony Quinn mm. playing a heavyweight boxer mm. uh, who's managed by Jackie Gleason. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's another guy. There's a little cameo from what was Cassius Clay, soon to be Muhammad Ali. That's right. At yeah. The beginning. That's right before he changed his name, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. POV. Yeah so, yeah, so the film opens up with this guy getting his ass kicked by Muhammad Ali. Yeah. <laughs> Before he was Muhammad Ali. Yeah, and, th- and then you have, like, you know, the cut man, the doctor, and they're mm. all looking at him, and they basically tell him, like, yeah, you're not fighting again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not allowed to fight again. It's not mm. going to happen. And then then you find out that, you know, some money got bet on the fight, and then there's a, you know, Jackie Gleason wasn't terribly honest. And Shocker. The other thing, too, is, like, I only know Jackie Gleason from The Honeymooners. I don't know who he is at all. I've so got the, I mean, okay, The Honeymooners... Little little detour here. The Honeymooners was the husband-wife domestic sitcom. Oh, it right. It set the stage. The Flintstones was entirely the Honeymooners just transported to a fake prehistoric time. So I'm thinking of Suburbia, 4.2 Children. The, the, well, not, well, they didn't even have children. That's the thing. So you see, then you have like I Love Lucy was another yeah, that yeah. came after the Honeymooners. So the idea of like the fat, schlubby man and the attractive wife who puts up with him mm. was established by Jackie Gleason. Oh, really? Yeah, like way I back in the day. That. Oh, it's great. Yeah. So you see him as the manager, and I keep expecting him, you got to watch some Honeymooners. I'll, mm. I'll show you something after we're done recording because it's it's just so funny. It's mm. so funny. But uh, so seeing him play a serious role, I was like, oh, wow, like Jackie Gleason's mm. good. Like, wow, this dude's actually really good. So, um, so you see this heavyweight who doesn't know how to do anything <clears throat> but fight it's incredibly sad isn't it and then the doctor tells him you can't fight mm. and then he has to go find a job but all he knows how to do is, is punch people yeah, so yeah. he goes to a bar or take punches which there you go yeah. so that's that's the other thing and people are talking about it way more now the whole CTE uh, yeah. chronic traumatic encephalitis yeah. something the, like the that brain's getting rocked a thousand times you know, punch drunk yeah punch right. drunk if you're getting you punchy call it punchy yeah and the, the, the one reason why I pointed that out was specifically for one scene. I think it's fairly early on is when he's talking to a waitress and he gets super detailed about a fight and the waitress just ignores him, you know? Yeah. And I thought that was so incredibly sad because we've been talking about the big names, you know, 
Rocky Balboa, <laughs> Muhammad Ali, and you know, and Tyson Fury and people like that. But there's there's a you know, for every one of them, there's a hundred Anthony Quinn characters that could take a punch, know their way around a ring, so they're useful. They'll get paid fairly decent, you know, okay money to be sparring partners, and you know, they'll get a decent career. But by the time they're you know, back in those days, if you were thirty five, you were doing well and then you're out so what do you do there's no there's no there's no and i thought that film kind of punctuated that really really well what really hit me about that film is he tries to get a job mm. fails mm. his former manager decides hey i'm gonna have you be a pro wrestler oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. carnival wrestlers before the wwf or yeah. wwe or whatever it is now yeah and you're gonna we're gonna sell the fight as being former heavyweight contender mm. in a wrestling match mm. but we're going to make you wear uh, a, a headdress like you're an American Indian mm. and we're going to have you Not run around the stage right we're going to have you run around the stage w playing this ridiculous caricature yeah. and you're going to get paid a lot of money so we can pay off the mob boss that's breathing down our neck but um, you're, you will live a life of shame basically yeah. in order to make ends meet so I'm, I'm, I, I watched this film and it was actually based off a teleplay by Rod Serling of The Twilight Zone, which I thought mm. was interesting. I did not know that detail. Mm -hmm. There we go. And uh, so I finished watching the film. And I finished watching it right after Ronda Rousey made her WWE debut. <laughs> so, Slightly different. No, no, no not her good. debut. No, right after she won, she won the, the belt. Right, yeah. Because you win things in WWE. Right, yeah, so... Right. so but I saw this promotional photo of Ronda Rousey, and she, she's wearing, like, the, the UFC. They're not UFC gloves, but they're... they're but the MMA four ounces, right? She's wearing the fingerless gloves that you yeah. wear in, in MMA fights. And she's got this ridiculous eye makeup on. It makes her look like a cat. And even the gloves have these weird little things on them to jazz them up mm. like she's out of a comic book. And she's posing for the photo. And I just remember thinking, like, there was a time... Where you were the baddest bitch on the planet. Literally. No one no one wanted to get in the ring with you except for maybe Chris Cyborg. Yeah. And and I you watched some early Ronda Rousey fights before Holly Holm Bashed her head out, kicked yeah. her. She dominated with those arm bars. Like she she just it was it was from anywhere. This is the thing. It wasn't the same move. I know. It was from anywhere. And Yeah, I remember when the Ronda Rousey thing kicked up and it was Diff I mean, there's a couple of elements that need to be acknowledged. It's a really shallow world, the female MMA world. And I don't mean that to be rude, but, you know... Not shallow in value, shallow in... Shallow in, in talent. It's not mm. a deep pool, pool. of talent. There yeah, you go. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah. not a deep pool of talent. And she was an Olympic-level judoka, which is nothing to be... You know, that's, an, that's serious shit. And she was trained by Jean LaBelle who's yeah. considered by many to be the original mixed martial artist of the modern era right, right, who right, right. trained Bruce Lee. Yeah, right. So you've got, there's a li there's a lineage there. That was the man behind the man, you know. And she, she was part of that. And, you know, she, she went to the, the, you can hear that all the stories of when she went to Japan and she trained to be a judoka there and, you know, the mats were frozen over in the Japanese winter and she would train on them and she would talk about how she cried every day. But, not because she was upset, but just because she wants to get better. So she's a hyper-competitive person. Um, but she did take a bite. The timing was right. And Ronda Rousey will forever be Ronda Rousey. 
I think her legacy is secure. Absolutely. But, but it, it just it hit me that it was like she still has to make money. I mean, she's made a lot of money. Yeah. But then it's just like she needs something to do. You know. If the martial skill is not at the level, she got surpassed by the talent. Hmm. That's what happened. Yeah. Everyone caught up. The rest of the division caught up. Caught she up wasn't and she ready. Didn't, she didn't improve. Exactly. And I remember I was, I was listening to. Uh, I can't remember what I was listening. I listen to so much. I can't remember where it yeah, was. Man. So sometimes it's people. <laughs> I know. Like, <laughs> some, it's not street. always podcasts. Like, yeah, it was some dude I was talking to at the bar. Uh, but they said that um, to be a, a martial artist, to be any kind of artist, is to constantly be improving your craft. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're not looking to improve, and you're not changing things, and you're not testing yourself, and you're not taking risks in your training, and you're doing the same old thing, you're not an artist anymore. And their comment was, is that. Rhonda didn't change the game plan for a world-class striker in Holly Holm and then didn't change up her boxing preparation when she came out for the, to fight Amanda Nunez and, and suffered for it. Now, she still has the star power. She has the entertainment value. You know, she can put mm. on a show. And she still has the, the, the skills. Just to put it in context, the Deontay Wilder Tyson Fury pay-per-view card got 300,000 buys. Now it's considered a big success. Ronda Rousey was pulling in millions. So that's wow. that's the level she was at. And I completely agree. And I think the problem from you know the great distance and shallow knowledge that I have is that they drank the Kool-Aid. Because if you listen to a uh, um, uh, an interview of uh, her trainer, Edmund Tarverian, he said she's putting down middleweight champs in sparring, in boxing. So middleweight is 160. She fought at 135. So that's already bullshit. And also, if you watch that Holly Home fight, she cut. She ain't got no ring craft at all. No. And I mean, and I, I, I wish that I could speak from a position of authority. I can't. But I just remember watching that fight because, because I, wa- I, I, I watched it in Philly. I watched it in Philly with my buddy Josh, who uh, he trains Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu, and we both were just completely slacked. I was just like. Oh no, this yeah. is bad. Oh, it was this, incredible. This is so bad. It was incredible. I was around my friend's house and I was living in Korea at the time. So we would get the fights in the middle of the day on Sunday. So That's great. Perfect. Mate, <laughs> I moved to the East Coast. I can't watch fights anymore. And so I'd rather go back to Korea. Anyway, um, we got there and I, do, I, I, I know it's really easy to be wise after the thing. But I did say this. I said to my friend, Holly Home can move and she can get out and she seems very strong so I'm not sure it's going to be as easy as everyone says because everyone was predicting first round armbar like every you know like she'd been doing there was no reason to believe that that wouldn't happen and then as soon as they come out and she starts lunging you were like oh my god this bitch is not going to get her it's not going to happen and it was an amazing uh, example of stick and move can be really brutal because people think stick and move is like a pussy's way out. Oh no no no! Watch that fight. Well, it's a sport. This is another thing that I don't think casual fans realize is that it's a sport. Mm. When you're fighting, when you're doing rules like MMA rules, boxing rules, or whatever, mm. you're you're in a sport. You're not mm. in a brawl on the street. Mm-hmm. So to come out just winging punches and trying to have like a, a highlight real finish you're not a great athlete 
None. You're not a sm- well, okay. You're not a smart athlete if that's how you're you're, you're doing sure. a fight. You're scoring points every time you're hitting them. Mm. You're wearing them down. You're setting up for like the submissions, setting up for the knockout, whatever. I mean, boxing is different, of course, but but it's similar though because you, the idea is don't get greedy. Win win the contest. You don't necessarily need to knock them out, but I think that um, people. I mean, the reason why Tyson was so popular was because he would do it in a couple of rounds, and it was it was so like seek and destroy but it is sport mm-hmm. and, and it's much more important to win and not get damaged than it is to you know bang so to speak well the, another fight on that same card wasn't the, that the same card as Cody Garbrandt uh, Dominic Cruz the um, the Nunes, Ronda Rousey N- Nunes fight Nunes, Nunes yeah, yeah, yeah yeah where you have Cody Garbrandt who did some serious homework on Dominic Cruz's yeah. style impressive and picked him apart yeah without ever losing his cool and was just completely calm the entire time I mean that that was a masterful performance by Garbrandt and then earlier in, in the the night TJ Dillashaw um, starred on Sunshine Sun I think his name I was. can't remember who he fought that was a great card but 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 my point being though is that like yeah, Cody Garbrandt, might, he's not someone that you want to pick a fight with, you know, in a bar because no. he can he's got kick a your ass. Stupid neck tattoo, hasn't he? Yeah. It's always in. You mean you mean of... you mean sick sick tat, bro? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> sick ink. I believe they say. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but the the sport part is what people don't realize, where they're like, oh, stand them up. It's boring if it's on the ground. Since I started going to jujitsu, yeah, yeah. I can now appreciate what the ground game, what is actually going on in the ground. Mm. And now watching UFC or any kind of MMA fight is way more interesting for me now. So that's like uh, the uh, art of editing for, for MMA. Yeah. You know, you kind of well, get it. And the thing, I don't think I've even talked about, I've probably talked about the art of editing on this podcast because I talk about it to everyone who's going to take the class. Mm. But it is a structural, it gives you a structural understanding of how a viewer perceives film. Mm. And what I really like about what Tom did is he actually gave you the neuroscience that supports his theory. Where he's like, these kind of things only register in the limbic area of the brain. That's the reptile part of the brain. Yes. Which the eye trace part of it and like where you're cutting. Did you see uh, Man from Tai Chi? No. Keanu Reeves film? I think it was was his uh, directorial debut. He did a very good film about the difference between digital and celluloid. But anyway, that's another conversation. Documentary? Yeah, 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 yeah. Keanu Reeves did it. I was kind of surprised, but anyway. So, Man from Tai Chi. I mean, I, I watch a good bit of action movies, and mm. sometimes the ones that go straight to DVD or straight to streaming are better than what you see in the movies. Good example: Michael Jai White, who mm. was the black gangster in The Dark Knight. Right, 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 right. right, right Hundred right. Large. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's also the lead in Black Dynamite, which right. is one of the. One of my favorite movies of all time. If you haven't seen Black Dynamite, <laughs> it's on Netflix. It is one of the funniest, most entertaining, most ridiculous things ever. Michael Jai White um, is a black belt in many different striking karate disciplines. Mm. And is in all these like low-budget action movies. One's called Blood and Bone, where like Kimbo Slice has a cameo or something like that. Oh, awesome. And the fight choreography and the camera work and the editing for the fight scenes is better than what I saw in Jackie Chan's last film. Mm. Like I... So do you think that, because um, like, one of the things I was, I was thinking about asking for in this podcast was boxing is rarely done well I mean, in terms of like the coverage of the actual fight because the, the punches are too perfect. Mm-hmm. If, if real boxing was like that, then, you know, 
that everyone would have CTE and retire at 25, you know? Well, most of, yeah, even the matches you see in the Rocky movies, it's like every punch is landing. Everything well, like every lands. other punch yeah, is landing. Yeah, everything lands. There's none of this. Which the does not happen in a... Not in a real one. But I was wondering whether, do you think other striking martial arts lends itself to cinema better than boxing? That's my latest theory. And I you mean you mean like karate and karate taekwondo or, or yeah, take, muay thai? Taekwondo would be a really good example because it's very flashy, it's very kicky, spinning, and you know. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, just think about stances for mm. one, like a boxing stance. Mm-hmm. You're not ex- exactly square. You've always got your you got your one foot forward, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, but you're not you're not square and you're not sideways. You got this kind of like a little bit of a forty five kind yeah. of going, right? Karate stances. To my understanding, I think it's purely side on. Way isn't it? more to the side. <clears throat> Conor McGregor is a good example of that. Very character. Uh, his teammate Gunnar Nelson just fought the other day, and exactly same, same. kind yeah, of. Okay, yeah. Stephen Thompson. Perfect. Wonderboy yeah, yeah. Thompson from the side. So he actually even, uses his leg as a jab. It's really weird. Anyway, carry he's on. so much fun to watch. Yeah, I, when I wish, when when he fights the right person. Yeah, it's a it's a good point. Anyway, but I think that with boxing. Because in order to protect yourself, you have to be closed and tight. Like the shell. There's yeah. a shell. You're covering up your face, right? For those of you who, are, who, who can't see this, we're, we're both <laughs> doing our boxing <laughs> stance right now. Anyway. So you've got this. Your your, ten, your chin is tucked. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. You've got your hands up. Mm-hmm. You want to stay tight to avoid them hitting you. And you're, then in order to throw a punch, right, you have to make sure you're covered up on this other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you're not vulnerable. And mm-hmm. then you want that distance that it's traveling to be as short as possible. Mm-hmm. None of that's cinematic. Yeah. None and you of have that's to cinematic. move your hips to it as well. And Roundhouse kick? Beautiful. Cinematic. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, well, that's the thing I was thinking. Because I remember you had a big thing about The Raid. Which is still, I think, the best filmed martial you know, arts film ever. And I think that... that I, that's the problem is the reason why boxing will look shit on film is because it looks shit on film <laughs> you know it, it's as simple as that or I th- well here, here's another thing so I, I did my it was actually my third stunt coordinating gig mm. last week for uh, for Tab's film mm. and I have to thank Brian Evans in the theater division for letting me take his stage combat class because it was just wonderful one of the biggest things he taught me was if you're on a stage whether it's proscenium in the round whatever mm. in order to make a punch or a kick or any kind of like a slap look real to the audience mm-hmm. you have to pretend that the audience has these strings mm-hmm. coming out of their eyeballs and the strings are attaching to the point of contact on stage where someone gets hit mm. if you don't break those strings with your hand or your foot mm-hmm. the audience doesn't believe contact was made right so that's why in a lot of stage productions, when they do it well, you'll see them show the punch, they'll step to the side, and then they'll come across. Mm. That's because everyone in the audience has a different set of strings attached to the point of contact, and you have mm. to break all of them. So that's why stage combat so theatric. It's so overdone. Yeah. Film, you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. There's a string between your eyeballs, which is the camera lens, mm. and the point of contact. There's only one string that needs to be broken. Mm. So you can do a million takes two feet away from the actual person's face they're not mm. making contact at all as long as the sound effects are good and you break the string so breaking the string and framing the action is the thing if you mm. don't frame the action so there's spatial awareness of what's actually going to be happening and you don't break the string 
audience doesn't know what the hell is going on mm. and what the problem is and this is a big problem in The Foreigner the latest Jackie Chan film which I, I just, was just such a disappointment wasn't that kind of a sentimental no I'm thinking something else sorry carry it on it was Pierce Brosnan there was a subplot about like ex-IRA oh, guys and then IRA things too. And, and then Jesus. you've got a Chinese guy living in IRA London IRA is so out now <laughs> It's just so not popular. See, I haven't followed it, so I don't. Well, it, the last thing I saw was the wind, the wind that shakes the barley, was, which would tore me apart. It was Mate, such a great film. imagine being English watching that film. God I can't. Lord. I can't imagine that. I felt really bad. I wish there was a twenty-three in me that said that I was Irish somewhere in my ancestry. So you don't have so. any Irish? Oh, uh, we got some. I mean, you know, like most white people have Irish in them, don't they? Um, and it just depends on. Um, what the cultural conversation is if you're if you're proud of it or not yeah that's true I mean, but yeah anyway right so you so framing the action so you have to frame the stunt you have to break the line mm. and the actor has to sell the impact mm. you have to believe that the actor actually got hurt or that the person was actually throwing a punch which is tough because you know a lot of the time it's sort of they'll take a little tap to the forehead and then suddenly their arms go up in the air and then you know it's kind of like dance you know but what I really learned in that stage combat class is that the actual acting mm. of feeling pain and wanting to hurt someone or doing it reluctantly or being beat up is what sells the fight more than the action itself. That makes sense. So having dramatic flurries of action and really cool choreography, it's like icing on the cake. But yeah. If you don't have the actual... Is, okay, first of all, is there a reason for this fight to happen? Mm. Did the events lead to this fight, or did you just decide to have a fight scene? Going back to Raging Bull, all those fights in that film are timed mm. to maximize the emotional impact of what he's going through in his real life. Mm. Okay, So many action movies and don't do that. The, the domestic violence in that is very messy and very, you know, he doesn't... It's like dragging someone to the ground and sort of missing punches and stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. it's very effective... Yeah, because you're emotional. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the thing. So, mm. you watch a man from Tai Chi. I mean, or don't watch it. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm not recommending it. Probably not going to watch it. But yeah. um, it has some of the worst editing in a film I've ever seen. Mm. Like bad, mm. bad editing, bad editing to the point where I wondered how they got away with it. Like, yeah. Did, did you hire a first timer here? Like, spatial awareness. Like, they'd have the camera. The camera angle would be wide enough to where you could see everything that was going on. Mm. But then they would cut to a different angle to emphasize a move, but they didn't use overlapping action. They didn't That's over kind of standard. Though. Why would okay, do I don't know if it's standard. I think that we're getting a pr we're pretty fortunate to have Tom teaching us this stuff because whoever chopped that film did not have an awareness of that. And it's an action movie. You'd, yeah. you'd think that that would be where you're, you're, you're dedicating your resources. That's... I almost don't believe that because I mean obviously I have <laughs> I do believe you but overlapping action is just totally it's like adding, putting a, a full stop at the end of the sentence do you know what I mean mm -hmm. like it seems so standard for, for you know editing. here's something interesting that I noticed when I was watching a Muay Thai fight mm. so you know like when you have the octagon UFC you've got the, there's like a camera for each side sort of, of the yeah. octagon for each eight of the eight yeah right? I think they, they have like a three like three elements anyway yeah, yeah they've yeah. got a bunch of cameras right so the beauty of that from a live production standpoint is that it's almost impossible to cross the 180 line <laughs> right it's 
very good point. If you keep it within, never thought about that before. If you keep it within the 180, if you're only ever moving around in, in mm. you're maintaining, so you're constantly resetting the 180 if you have an establishing shot. Right? Mm. So the UFC producers are really good at maintaining that. Like you are always aware of where people are. Mm. So I watched this Muay Thai fight, and they only had. It's a ring, so it's mm. four sides, and I think they only had. No, they had four cameras, but the guys that were operating the cameras were moving back and forth along the side of the ring. Dang. And there was a point at which this guy did a sweep, and then suddenly I felt like I was in a different fight, and I, mm. I actually rewound it. I was like, wait, what the? And I realized that they kept jumping the 180 because they didn't have enough cameras to cover the that fight. That is interesting. I never thought about that. So before. I'd like to actually go back and start watching more of those to see if that's... A thing. If I was imagining that, but I'm... I, but it, it's a, it's an issue that the live broadcast didn't take into account. I mean, that's a really interesting point because I um, I teach uh, English online just to get a little bit of extra bread, and I'm fortunate because I've got Fox, and they play. Excuse me, they play uh, 25 greatest fights of the UFC or mm -hmm. you know like some random event from somewhere. So I'll teach I really doubt that I'm going to get caught out but I teach these kids and I have my TV on in the background whilst I'm watching fights and the coverage is amazing and I, I'm starting to think now that you've said that, that maybe it's to do with the octagon sort of thing mm -hmm. because I'm having flashbacks of boxing fights and they never quite respect that you have to it takes like a second to catch up to a new camera angle that, that, that breaks the rule yeah that's really interesting I didn't think about it. And that. it's only because I was just watching. I got so used to UFC, and then I was watching mm. this Muay Thai fight. I was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Why do you think Muay Thai is not as popular as it? I would have thought it should have been? It's so brutal, but maybe that's it. Because hmm. the elbows and knees, and, you know, because the, the people always complain about uh, MMA fights being too grapply, you know. Uh, so they want striking and they want all these you know elbows and knees and stuff and so it's like well if you like that then why aren't you a Muay Thai fan you know? have you watched a lot of like pro kickboxing not a lot uh, some but not a lot me neither <laughs> uh, so I, I mean I, maybe I just answered my own question I don't you know? I don't know what I'm talking about but I will say the last kickboxing match I watched I watched um, Joe Schilling Oh, I know him. I yeah, watched yeah. him in a in a kickboxing match because he does. I think he does MMA, Muay Thai, and kickboxing. Which he is, does everything. He he was in a, a Bellator event quite recently, which is amazing. Mm. But Jason um, is the man. But here's the thing: thing. you have different rules for each style of fighting and promotion, right? Yeah, there's also a cultural thing with Muay Thai, I believe, as well. But here, so here's the thing about kickboxing: just like in boxing, when you clinch up, they separate you. Yeah. Like, you're not supposed to fight in the clinch. Right. Right? So if you're kickboxing, you throw something, the guy grabs your leg, the ref comes in, stops. Mm. So I, I can't, I have a hard time watching kickboxing because the ref is always coming in and separating it. Yeah. Like, why isn't the action, like, in all the kung fu movies I've seen where they just never <laughs> stop throwing punches and kicks? Well, I, I think that that's actually a really good point is because there's, they call it, like, what, the eight weapons, you know? So you've got the... Yeah, it's an eight-limb eight fighting style. Eight-limb fighting style. So you've got even more reasons to clinch up and, you know, stop the engagement. So that's probably why people don't have... You know, in boxing, it happens where guys will just stand in the pocket and they'll just have at it, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, it happens a lot a lot more in MMA. And you know that famous Max Holloway bit? Which one? He's fighting Ricardo Lamas, and there's 10 seconds after the run of Snap, snap! And then... Max Holloway punched the ground. Oh, yeah. And they, yeah, nodded, yeah. <laughs> and they just... just invi he invites him to come trade. Yeah, they just nod on the ground and they just 
go at it that for was, 10. Oh, man, that was amazing. Max Holloway. Well, so here's the thing about but in Muay Thai, when you sweep someone, the ref comes in, sets yeah. it up. So I, I can handle watching a Muay Thai fight more than I can handle watching your normal kickboxing. Mm. But the thing about MMA is that that sweep, that punch, that fall to the ground doesn't stop the action. Then mm. it's like, oh, shit. And we you have a whole lot of other problems to deal with. Exactly. Yeah. So like, I, I don't get bored by the by the grappling, even less so now that I know a little bit about. I know the mm. tiniest bit about jujitsu. I don't mm. want to oversell myself here. That's wise because that's a deep sport. I, I, I mean, and I'm I'm sure my friend Josh is going to listen to this. And uh, Josh, please forgive me for everything that I'm screwing up yeah. in this conversation. Uh but that, so for, for Muay Thai, first of all, you have the, the there's the cultural thing, um, unless you've seen the film Ang Bak. Yeah, I, I mean, I know a bit about Muay Thai. I mean, I've listened to a lot of podcasts with um, the guys that have done it, the, the, the Thai way, you know, mm-hmm. and um, I believe that the first round, it's sort of generally agreed that they don't go for it. You right. Know? Um, you know, there's a hell of a lot of gambling involved, so there's usually a bit of that yes. going well, on. You saw, did you see a prayer before dawn? Yeah, well, we should, I was about to bring that up. Okay. Um, and you know the, the attention. I've never been to Thailand, right. um, and I've never certainly I've been to one Muay Thai uh, practice, and my I managed to make my foot bleed from kicking the uh, kicking the bags. Dude, you gotta you gotta get tough. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, we started doing we started incorporating kicks at uh, jujitsu on Tuesday mornings. We we do striking, so we've got the gloves, mm. and they started doing the kicks and. Everyone's kicking this like dummy and going ah yeah ah. I'm like these are like tough guys who tap <laughs> tap me out when we're rolling and you know who are like you know big they're, they're good at what yeah, they do. I went to one session so I know there's some decent sized dudes there. Some, some big dudes and I go up and kick the bag and I'm fine. Yeah. And they'll look at me like did that hurt? I'm like no. And then I realized that I skateboarded for so long and tore up my shins for mm. like at least four years straight I was constantly hitting myself in the shins that like kicking that it doesn't bother me at all oh I'm <laughs> such a baby because I did a you know ran done half marathons and things like that and <clears throat> even though I'm in my 30s I don't really stretch properly so I have really what I, I consider very sensitive shins and so even <laughs> if my girlfriend looks at them I'm like stop looking at them they hurt you know but I, I had a, an ex-girlfriend that um, was sort of casually doing Muay Thai when we were dating and now she's into it pretty serious and she had a fight she went to she's from texas but she went to new york to have a fight and it was so weird seeing her like walk this girl down and like try is it on the internet it is it is i have to give me the link yeah i'll send you it's it's really (laughs) it's really weird because she's like a very southern blonde white you know very Mm -hmm. polite you know Bless her heart. Bless her heart. Uh, but then she was messaging me saying, yeah, I'm going to be the big bitch in the ring. I'm going to walk her down. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay, like, go for it, you know. Do it. Do it. Um, but Prayer Before Dawn, which I think was one of the movies I recommended yes. to you. Um, had you seen it before? No. Um, now, that film's really interesting because... It, so, br- brief synopsis for our yeah. listeners. Oh, right. Um, so, it's about... Um, a guy from Liverpool in England and he gets involved in some I think it's not drug dealing it's something to do with like false flags anyway he ends up in a Thai prison and uh, he is addicted to heroin and you know he goes through that and then eventually he finds a Muay Thai gym realises that he can fight he convinces uh, the people that run the Muay Thai gym to let him fight and then his life gets easier 
and it sort of evolves from there. The reason why it's worth mentioning is because it has uh, a great eye for detail. I, I mean, I, I could, thinking about it now, I feel like the sweat and the slapping of the, le the leather, um, the fact that his Muay Thai coaches are all smoking cigarettes constantly. <laughs> and this is like a really cardio intensive sport and yet oh, everyone yeah. smokes all the time. Um, uh, and it, it got kind of mixed reviews. I think a lot of film criticism is a bit difficult because it's always sort of left liberal based. Well, not even that. I mean, criticism itself, if you don't start with the, with the, the baseline of it didn't work and this is why mm. it didn't work for me and you try to make grand statements about the artist about the people involved about what you think the meaning was about how this that or the other is negative mm. then you're not really doing a good job right and I, I had one review that really pissed me off about this film and it was she was like oh I call this kind of film a cool story bro film what yeah I thought that was really. Where, where did she, where did she get her advanced degree? Well, she's French. So oh. something to do with that. But, uh, <laughs> sorry, French people. Cool Damien, <laughs> sorry. Um, but it was it was a really. That's, was, that's just that's underselling the the. What the character is going through. Yeah, My I goodness. mean, you know, do you do you do you honestly think this story wasn't worth telling? Do you honestly think that? Because I think it's worth telling. And the way they told it, I think they did uh, did really, really well. And, and well, here's here's something that I, I thought was interesting about. So, so first of all, nothing compares to the raid as far as yeah, yeah. I will keep, never disrespect I'm the gonna, raid. I'm selling keep your presence, banging that drum because it's just. Have you seen it yet? No, not oh yet. Oh my god, Graham! Do I have it here? Do I have it in my office? I think it's on Netflix. I don't. We need to watch it. Let's watch it on the big screen mm. around the corner. As soon as you're done shooting your film. Oh, I'm sorry for sorry for bringing that up. Yeah. Um, anyway, just sent me into pure depression. One of the things about Prayer Before Dawn is that it's done in a style that doesn't actually pass judgment on what's happening. Yeah. It absolutely. lets you. There's there's almost a documentary arm's length mm. element to the storytelling that I mm. that I thought was really interesting. So you don't have a whole lot of the main character inner monologue talking about his problems talking about it's 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 you know all very little about the character which i think is right. actually very effective and and one of the ways he survives is by having this relationship with a thai lady boy yeah which is not presented with any moral judgment whatsoever mm. it's done as just hey this is how he's surviving these extreme circumstances and this is the only connection he has to any kind of comfort or mm relationship to the real world and it's not it's not presented as this is an important social message and it's not mm. also presented as this is perverse or this is that it's just done like this is what it is also, and we're still moving and I, I, I really appreciate that I don't think you're ever encouraged to feel sorry for him either no which I think is quite important because he keeps fucking up he keeps fucking up and it does this sort of difficult thing of like okay well we gotta stick with this guy for a while you know whether we mm -hmm. want to or not and you know I mean the only thing that I would say that was uh, uh, didn't really quite work for me was the end it just sort of ended there was no yeah it felt a little un unsatisfactory at the end but do you know what it's totally worth watching um, 
And yeah, it didn't do that. It didn't invite you to feel sorry for him. And it also wasn't. Here's another thing. It wasn't. It wasn't didactic. Not at all. Yes. Which, absolutely. which I think, more and more, the entertainment that I enjoy is that which does not assume a point of view, and that kind of lets you draw your own conclusions. Mm. And that if it does have a message, it presents a scenario and then lets you decide how you feel about it. You know, that's very against the grain of where I think film criticism is going. Because yeah, I constantly hear um, critics talking about films need to make a stand. They need to say how they feel about something. Right. Well, that's propaganda. I, is it not? I, <laughs> I agree completely because we exist in the gray. You know, right, and, and it isn't art. I mean, if we're looking at, I mean, and this is where we get really highfalutin, which is why I'm really glad you're here, Graham. Because when I think highfalutin, pretentious, I think of Graham Holt. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I got the accent, man. Let's go for it. Uh, but I, I feel like if you're talking about film as art mm. or television as art or whatever, when you, when you get to the point of art, it, it it really you're on the edge of the known and the unknown. Mm. And as an artist, you have an idea, you have a concept, and you're exploring it. Mm. And that doesn't stop when you finish writing your script. Mm. Like you were even telling me that during the audition process, you completely changed your approach yeah, to your story course, because you yeah. saw an actor who showed you something. You're like, oh my God, this, that's an amazing angle. Yeah. And even with my auditions that I had this past week, uh, some of the. I, I originally had this one character I considered like, oh, he's in his mid 30s, he's been through some shit, he's done this, that, mm. and the other. And then I had an actor come in who's an undergrad, 20 years old, 21 years old who completely opened up my eyes to the possibilities of the story from a younger perspective. It's an amazing thought, moment, isn't it? You just you just suddenly realize this shit got wild. Right, man. and then, then it becomes, okay, how does that decision change the other scenes, mm. his relationship to the other characters, and now what is the film actually saying? Mm. What, what What is, am I conveying the same idea? Am I conveying it effectively? Um, and then you have all these little surprises, and if you don't follow them, and if you come down with this hammer of this is the message, mm. then you might as well be on the Hallmark Channel or, or doing or doing little spots for you know cable news. Well, I mean, is that harsh? No, that's not harsh. Um, is that because I'm I'm a fan of like exploration, and then when the when the story sort of talks to you, and mm -hmm. what does it teach you, and you know like again the audition process sort of informed my story in a different way and then you know you have to look at uh, okay so I'm doing this now so what does it do to the rest of the scenes and the rest of the story and what am I actually saying now and I often don't know until I get to the editing suite and then I'm like okay well this is this is what it is however there are some great propagandists I, I would say that Spike Lee is a great propagandist I would say that you know, you know exactly what you're getting when you get a Spike Lee film. You know it's politics right from the get-go. Mm -hmm. And I watched Black Klansman quite recently. I still haven't seen that. Yeah, but you know that you know where it's going. Wait, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing about Spike Lee is that... How is he going to get there? How is he going to get there? But you know he's going to get there. Right. And, okay, so this is how I feel about Spike Lee. Obviously, I'm a white guy from the home counties of England. So I know exactly his struggle. Um, you know, <laughs> personal level. Yeah, it's, sure. it's difficult being, you know, in a prosperous. Well, you know, you were a, a, uh, a British man in South Korea for a number of years. So. Yeah. 
completely it's the same thing. With black America. The American black experience is, is you've got it. Yeah, I mean, a few differences, you know. But anyway, even if I agree with Spike Lee's politics, and maybe I do, you know, I still don't need to know that from his films. Right. And, you know, there are some films that he has done that I admire really deeply. Like, I love Do the Right Thing. It's a good movie. I didn't like Malcolm X, then I watched it with a commentary, and now I kind of think it's a masterpiece. So I haven't seen Malcolm X. It's interesting. I would actually recommend watching it with a commentary before you watch it with the film. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons why. Um, and there's a couple of other films that I like parts of. But he he is a propagandist. And I don't think there's any other way of looking at that. And mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a flawed philosophy. I, sorry to knock Spike Lee. But, oh, hey, you know. it's, it's whatever. Um, and, you know, uh, Eisenstein was a propagandist. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's to put it mildly. Putting it mildly. And yet he was like the godfather of, of montage. So, that's what's know. so fascinating about That's the other cool thing about that editing class is we go through Eisenstein, you know, mm. we go through D.W. Griffith, and mm. you start seeing the development of cinematic language. Oh, my God, language. D.W. Griffith. It had a whole film about the heroism of the Ku Klux Klan yeah, called Birth of a Nation. fucking hours, which pissed me more off than the racism. <laughs> but then, you know, you watch, was it Broken Blossoms was, yeah. uh, was the one yeah, you yeah. teach, and you just look at it, and when you look at it in context, and you go, you're like, oh, no one had done this before. Yeah. Like the idea of an extreme close-up yeah, yeah. Like that was him. Yeah. Like someone had to decide we're going to get right up in this guy's face. And yeah, he was a rage, scare you know, the audience. He was a raging alcoholic as well. Yeah, he, he died broke, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, they all should. I mean, I can't. Raging alcoholic. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> I think there was a thing in this film called Sideways. I can't even kill myself because you got to have success before you kill yourself. Right. So when I'm successful, then I'm going to hit the bottle hard. I see. Know? Well, it's like. Uh, Alan Moore, you familiar with Alan Moore? No. Comic no. book writer? No, I don't think so. He wrote Watchmen. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is like Are a they not called times. graphic novels? Um, he calls them comics. Okay. Graphic novels is something that the men at the publishing house decided would make it more palatable for adults. Your English accent's not that bad. It's all right. Thank you very much. That's okay. Um, he is from Northampton. Oh, okay. Northampton. Yeah. Anyway... I'm impressed that you know that, actually. <laughs> anyway, carry on. So he talks about how um, it used to be that when you were a young man, back mm. in like the 1800s, you would go, run away to sea. Mm. That was the thing. Like, if you wanted to seek your fortune, like get on a ship, be a deck boy or whatever, yeah. or, and deckhand, and then that was how you found your fortune. So you have these great stories, you know, like Moby Dick, Ishmael, yeah, goes, right? yeah, yeah. Captain's Courageous by Kipling is one that I read many times when I was when I was a lad. Um, Treasure Island, same thing. So you have mm. you have this like literary tradition of. My father was in the Merchant Navy, so I had that sort of same literature when I was a kid. Okay, yeah, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, so but in the modern in the modern age, that's not really how you do it. So what do you mm. do? You start a rock band. Yeah, that's going off to sea now, starting a band. Mm. But the way Alan Moore puts it is that he goes, you know, now you start a rock band, you become addicted to smack, <laughs> and then. <laughs> If you're lucky, a year later, your heroin besotted corpse shows up in a gutter somewhere in <laughs> East London. You're like, oh my God, Alan. Like, how do you really feel about our youth? I, I, it's not something that I would tell my kids to do, but there is a strong part of me that does sort of feel like there's some truth to that. And, you know, the people that we grew up 
well, I did English literature, film studies. Um, so Byron was a big guy. And in his poems, he'd order a drink, you know, literally in his poems. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of... Um, and I, I only know him as a fictional character in other stories. Right. I, I mean, I, I mean, you know, my limit, my knowledge of Byron is fairly limited, so don't, I, I won't go further than that. Okay. Um, but I do remember that in in his poetry, and there is something. The only thing I find difficult to believe is that filmmakers can be raging alcoholics because you have to be on set and you have to know what you're doing and you have to. If you want to be good. Exactly. I mean, what's worse than a director that doesn't know what they want? Uh, is there anything worse? Very little is worse than that. Even a really dictatorial director at least is telling you to do something. And Absolutely. it's tangible. Yeah. And you can feel the finish line. No right. matter how far away it is, you know it's there. I, th- I think that if you're going to be an alcoholic director, you have to have an amazing production team to cover your ass. Definitely. I think that's got to be what it is. I mean, like the last film I shot, I did it entirely sober. Yeah. Because be. I, 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 just, I just had to. I, I had to go completely straight edge for the entire... What, even between set set days? Yeah, yeah. I mean, usually I need a, I had a little three time mo- to sleep. I had three months of sobriety around Calliope. Really? Yeah. Oh, that that was that was like a, a personal test for myself to see if I could do it. Well, you're naive for that. I'm not sure I could do it. I'm not sure it's for me. I mean, n- n- I'm not doing it this time. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> once t- was enough. Yeah. To be completely candid, is it, it's. I don't want to be hung over on set. It's not no. that. It's just, even if you've been shooting for t- uh, for twelve hours, and you know you need sleep, when it's your film, the it, it's like a higher level of anxiety. It doesn't leave you alone. So sometimes you need to because you're not. You're, well, first of all, and you're well, film school a little bit different. But mm. you're always you're answering not only to the producer, mm. you're answering to the the department because mm. I mean I don't think anyone in this program. I'm, I mean I'm I'm being generous here. Um, wants to reflect poorly on, on the, the, the faculty that led us into the program that are investing so much time in trying to make us better filmmakers. Yeah, there's that. You also don't want to let down um, the talent you've cast that are giving your film life. Mm. And you also don't want to, th- uh, if you're not paying anybody, because we're not SAG Productions, mm. you don't want to be wasting the time of your crew if you have half a heart. I mean, yeah, I mean... So, and then you don't want to let yourself down because you have a vision you want to achieve. See, that's number one for me. <laughs> so, well, right, well, it, what I'm saying though is all these other things contribute to that feeling of anxiety. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, definitely when everyone's, you know, you, you're looking around. I mean, and Calliope, um, f- fairly sizable crew. And I mean, for our level, um, I, I remember being 15, 16 at least in the Snyder House and looking around and like we're all here for Robert's film. There must have been a moment where you were like, "Fuck, this better be good," you know, or at least this. At least people should have a good time. Actually, what yeah. I what I was actually more concerned about on that production, because I had such a great production team, mm. um, was I enjoyed the shoot by the way. Oh, so, you know. great! Well, thanks yeah. for being on the shoot. I appreciate yeah. that. Um, the the thing for me was making sure that I was engaged with the actors when they needed me. Absolutely. Like yeah. if any of my actors looked like they were confused or lost or needed something, even if it was like if they needed water or coffee. Or like I, I knew that Annie was had like a paleo diet, and all we had were like crackers and whatnot on set. Mm. But I had brought some beef jerky, and I was like, "Here, have some beef jerky." Oh, thank you so much. Mm. Like that, being able to focus entirely on making sure that my talent was good kept me from worrying too much about all the nitty gritty of 
getting the shot set up because I knew I could count on Willits to yeah. you know, get the camera. And I knew that Matt Love would tell me <laughs> if we were losing time. You yeah. know, I knew that Savannah would tell me if there was a crisis. It's a, it, it, quite a good move. I mean, again, I don't know anyone who knows Matt, whether anyone's listening who knows Matt Love, but I mean, he's usually a DP guy, but I thought it was a very uh, strong AD, you know? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it was a good feeling. It felt like it was moving well. And as a director, I mean, it depends on, maybe it depends on the type of director you are, but I mean, you and I make very different stories. Um, yes. Yet our focus is sort of similar, is to make sure that the performances work and, and the actors are comfortable. And it can be difficult. Um, it can be, I mean, it, it just is. <laughs> it is, because you're asking them to tell your story in a specific way. And you're asking them to be emotionally naked on camera. <sighs> And How take do do take notes. Th this is why my fascination with acting and actors is that they're embodying a character written by you or the screenwriter, okay, that doesn't mm. exist mm. unless you're doing a biopic. Doesn't exist. They are actually creating, like, magic. They're contributing to, like, a magical combination. Precisely the word that I would use, magic. That, 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 that if done well, changes the way an audience member is feeling. That craft is something that I do not have the stamina or guts to throw myself into. Mm. And I will always, at that level, if I'm on set and my talent's not happy, it's my fault. Yeah, absolutely. It's my fault. Yeah, and I will yeah. do whatever I can to make sure that they're, they're doing well because I can't do what they do. And I, I am just overwhelming. I'm, I'm overwhelmed constantly by what they're able to do. How they're able to do it, how many takes they can do it. When you when you see an actor who cries mm. on cue ten takes in a row, come on, yeah. I, I, that that to me is is a superpower. Do you remember? I remember um, the second Rafal talking about this. Is when you uh, you have a an actor say the lines that you wrote, and they elevate it. Mm -hmm. Mate, there are top five sensations that you get in life and that is a strong contender I, I there's a couple of times where they've elevated what I've written and uh, it's an incredible feeling and when you're really locked in with an actor and they take a direction really well or they kind of didn't but they went with it anyway mm -hmm. I mean it's magic it really actors is. are magic I don't know I don't know any other word for it that's that's the closest I can come to describing what they they do when yeah. it's done well. Now there are, it's not often that it happens. I th with any discipline and any craft, there are of course degrees of competence. Yeah, definitely. but but I'm, I'm I've I've seen a couple of shows this semester and a couple of films where I have just been completely blown away by performances. Like yeah. I, I saw Cabaret. Recently, oh, I couldn't see that. I was too busy on tabs. Things, I, I had never seen the film with Liza Minnelli. I'd never seen a production. I've mm. never heard the music. Didn't know anything about it except it was like Nazis. Right, right before the Nazis come in, yeah. it was Weimar Germany. Yeah, that's all I knew about it. And I went in there, and that production mm. blew me away. Mm. Completely blew me away. And I'm seeing actors that I've seen in other productions, and they made me believers. And mm. it just, it just, it's, it's so invigorating to get to see number one live theater done that well. Mm. Number two, 
seeing people that are like potential collaborators and being like, I want to work with that person. Oh my God. There were yeah. two people I reached out to to audition for my film entirely based on cabaret. Mm. And I'm going to cast, I'm hoping to cast both of them because they were that, that good. They made me see something that I never expected. Our postgraduate class, the MFAs this year are Whew. real strong. Whew. I mean, yeah, they're really strong. <laughs> I mean, I, the, 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 the ones that came in, I was like, they're ready. It's cooked, you know. Yeah. Um, like, why, why are you in an MFA program? Kind, a kind of. I, you ever feel nearly, that yeah. I mean, I actually, I was about to ask that, and then Hannah had to sort of hit me on the knee and say, "Don't say that," you know. Um, and you know, there was a one guy like um, I have this one scene where it's just one monologue, and it's in an uh, an AA meeting, and he just talks about the shitty things that he did when he was deep in the in the hole. And uh, I sent it to him, and my idea was it was going to be kind of a local Southern Ohio scrappy farmer, strong guy, lots of tattoos, trucker hat, plaid shirt, and he was like, "Howdy, y'all," that sort of thing. Very sort of cliched character. Things you've learned from your extensive time in Appalachia. Yes, exactly. And um, <laughs> this guy, Michael Diaz, came in, and he just flipped it. He flipped it completely, and he gave it a completely different resonance. And it was very intimidating for like a guy that's kind of green to the whole directing game. I was like, oh, I'm handling fire here. This is not, you know, I, I, I asked him a couple of questions and I just didn't need anything more from him. It was, you know, it was tough. Mm -hmm. With undergrads, it's easy because you kind of not manipulate but you kind of know the beats to hit to get to where you want to go with the performance and you can get something more but with these mfas they're heavy in the game well also every actor has a different way of working yeah that's true you have broad you have, have true. broad ways of like like for i remember when i was when i was an undergrad I, I took a couple theater classes and one of the things this don laplante told me was um, you can broadly categorize acting as being outside in mm. or inside out. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, this actor needs to have a wig on and they need to have... So some... a crude example would be like Daniel Day-Lewis is inside out. It, it would seem that way, yes. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we don't know, but exactly. it seems that way. And then you have someone like... Uh, I remember, uh, I think it was Laurence Olivier. Said oh, yeah. That he always, he going, always yeah. needs a prop a prosthetic mm. or a hat or something specific to that character for mm. him to embody it and he's you know, considered one of the greatest of all time so so there's these two different ways and then i and then i asked um from the back of the class i was thinking i was the only non-theater major in this particular class uh i said so wh what do you do if you're a an inside out director and you're directing an outside <laughs> an actor was like the best question come i would with. call that a difficult bastard Right. Well, he said. He said, if you're a good director, you will adapt your directing to the actor. Yeah, I think that's true. Which I, is not easy. No, I, I, I would <laughs> say that um, not to. Well, okay, one thing that I think I realized when I was doing the audition process, because I'm actually properly dealing with actors, um, is my experience of teaching in in career for ten years and. Every class is different, personalities are different, you know, you have to be adaptable. And so you have like, well, this kid's a shithead, doesn't do homework. Oh, this kid is super into what they're doing. So you have to be malleable all the time. 
and then you think you've got the game and then there'll be one student that'll just have a completely different approach and so you have to be malleable and so I think through having to instruct and control a class is it it felt I mean again I don't want to blow my own trumpet but it it I could tap into all that experience and I was suddenly you know it was like getting my, my old guns out you know it's like oh shit I know how this goes you know mm-hmm. and I found that very beneficial uh, not with the MFAs because they're a sort of different league Mm-hmm. But um, definitely, you know, when you've been an instructor for a, a lot, a long time, and you know, I fucked up a thousand ways with kids. You know, offended them, made them cry, or let them get away with too much bullshit. So, were, then, were you teaching English in Korea? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, you have to control a class of sometimes up to fifteen kids, um, and you have to learn a couple of basic things. Like one of them, discipline, is so important. Because as soon as as soon as the, the kids realise that there is a line, they'll never cross it anymore. But it's really tough to establish that line, you know. So punishing a kid, or pulling the trigger on some thing where the parents have to be told, mm-hmm. is difficult because you have to take responsibility for that and you have to explain why the kid's fucking up and they take it personally, and you have to turn to the kid and say, "Hey, it's not personal, but I gave you a couple of chances and you didn't." respond appropriately so i'm not enjoying this but this is the way it's going to work so you take those skills and you apply it to people and so if someone's not giving you what you want sometimes you've got to piss them off a little bit and you know just realize what their limits are pick up on the signs that they're giving you Mm -hmm. and then maybe you know the next take you're like take a break go smoke a cigarette or something you know. Well, also sometimes like I feel like if if an actor is not talking, mm. they seem reserved that that they need to be talked to. But then, maybe yeah, they, maybe they just like quiet time before the camera rolls. I think which so. I learned I learned the hard way because I kept interrupting this this one particular actor, and they just kept saying I'm am f- fine, mm. I'm fine. And then finally they went Robert, I'm fine. What I'll let you know if I'm not fine. I was like okay, it's good. But I was I was so nervous about like screwing up the, the yeah, vibe of, course, of this set. Of like I, I read their quietness as being a bad thing, but in fact, that was how they were preparing. You had, um, on your second year film, I was doing the sound, so I, <laughs> I had all the actors. Oh, yeah, of course you did, yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, it was so funny because you had one, it was a total professional, he'd turn it on mute between takes, so, you know, I never heard any of his bullshit, but then I had, there was another actress who was like, Oh, I'm gonna fuck this up. I'm awful. I'm fucking awful. I'm fucking really shit. I'm really, really, really Are you shit. serious? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, dude, the actresses in that film were so good. I know, but I think it was just her like purging herself, you know, or oh, okay. you know, she just needed. It was a part of her process. That's amazing. Wow, that's yeah. really funny. You never yeah. told me that. That's sound people. They know all the secrets. I'm t- yeah. Man. Well, the, the, another great thing, or just thing that th- really threw me off, mm. was when Tim started improvising. Mm. He's a good improviser. Because I wasn't ready for it. He didn't tell me he was going to do it, and I just, I, I completely froze. Mm. And then later found out um, in the editing process that I was able to take chunks from each of his improvisational performances from different angles and make it look as though it was part of the same exchange. Oh, nice. Even though it was three different takes, mm. because it was him trying to hammer a point home, and he gave mm. me like four different options, mm. wildly improvising. But when I chopped them together in the right 
order, it looked like he was escalating his point and mm. then driving it home. And for the, the scene, which was a, kind of a fantasy scene, it worked beautifully. So he, he gave you some really good options without you Absolutely. realizing. Absolutely, without yeah. me directing him to. So it was just, that's a whole other thing about, you know, you have an artist here. Mm. It's not the same kind of art that you're, or the same craft that you're into, but like, let them, let them work. Well, that was something on a set I was on recently, and I was the AC, and, um, you know, it was pretty chaotic, the set. Um, and I turned around to the actor, and I said, um, <clears throat> you all right? He was like, yeah, I think I could probably have, you know, I didn't quite get it. Maybe maybe the next time I could have got it. And I did the thing that you should never do, as I went up to the director, and I said it quietly. I said, um, I just had an actor tell me that they probably wanted one more. So next time you do a take, just ask them, you know. Um, because I've heard this on a thousand interviews. Directors, writers say it's always the actor's take they use. Because that's when they're fully engaged with it. Right. And it was a really good tip. And it was something that I kind of put in my little pocketbook now of like, when I think I've got it, give it to the actors. Say, okay, do you want one more? Because I think that's, that's interesting. probably the take you want. Well, here's the other thing, though. The takes leading up to it, all the notes you're giving are part of the process that contributes to mm. their personal take. Mm. So it's almost like you're, you're building options and you're pouring you know, different components into the martini yeah, yeah, shaker. Yeah, yeah. And then when you hand it to them, they give you something. Martini's very apt. It's, but, it, martinis feature heavily in my script for some reason. Yeah, it's the Steve Ross effect. <laughs> but yeah, um, <laughs> it is. I mean, do you, do you think... You know, but, but it's so true though even in the auditions I, I would give them I would have them do like four different reads different different emotional perspectives mm. or different different energies and then I would say okay do it your way and and I think I'd say three three quarters of the time the one where they did their own thing was the one that really nailed it absolutely and so, you, you know you want to provide that sort of space and time for them to get there mm-hmm. and you know there were there were actors that we brought in for the auditions for, for my latest thing whom I saw them do okay work in other films student films of course and uh, then um, you know I, I was fortunate because I got a really experienced filmmaker as my producer so she's constantly giving me tips and you know I picked up a a habit and a way of dealing with it and you know, I we you know we were getting actors that you know quite frankly I didn't think they were that much good. But then when we gave them improvised exercises or had a chat with them, kind of understood their vibe, and then got them to do the scene again, they can do really good work. But you've got to invest in them, mm-hmm. and that's the thing is that our crime, not necessarily yourself or myself, but as you know, curators of different type of talents is that we kind of overlook actors as the, you know, gaffer, actor, DP. Do you know what I mean? Well, I think curator is actually the the great way to describe the director's job. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Because you're, I mean, you're... Jack of all trades, master of none. You can't light the scene that you're going to direct. I mean, you you can. Is it going to be as good? Jacob can light my scene. I can't, but you know. I, I can I can tell you what I'm going for, mm, but I'd rather mm, have mm. someone who really cares about lighting light that scene for me. Mm. Um, I could play the main character in my film if I, you know, thought I was Woody Allen or something. Yeah. Uh, it's good that you don't think that. I, I don't. 
Um, thank you, Graham. Specifically, Woody Allen. Not, not a comment on your acting, but more like the Woody Allen thing. But anyway. You know, it was really, it was really funny because because I've done a couple acting exercises, and, and I used to I used to I was heavily invested in trying to be a voice actor for a while. I can believe that. And I did this. I did a I did a spot for uh, Norelco. It wasn't a spot. It was like an industrial where like you had to buy. What's that? Norelco. It's a it's like a, a razor company. Oh, okay, electric okay. razors. So. You only saw this video if you bought the product, right? Right. It wasn't like it was on TV or anything. But I remember going into the the recording booth because I got the call like half an hour before they needed me. This guy, this casting director, Rob Holt, shout out, Rob, great guy, mm. says, "Hey, can you be in Center City in half an hour?" And I'm like, "If I leave now, I can, but I need to put some clothes on and like get out the door." Yeah. I said, "I'll be there in like 40 minutes." So I go down to the recording studio. And I've got like three ladies from Norelco, like behind the glass. Then I've got the director, the sound engineer, everyone. And I walk in there and I, I, I'm like, oh my God, I, I feel unbelievably unprepared for this mm. right now. I had just gotten the script, never seen it before. And it's it's it, it's a spot like like for the man who's into looking seriously good, two blades are better than one. <laughs> it's one of those like, you know, these, yeah, yeah. you have to have this kind of razor if you really care about Yeah. So they've got this male model like looking in the mirror, you know, like checking out his scruff, and then you've got my like douchey voice over top of it, <laughs> and I and I just remember like I did a couple takes, and then and then the ladies behind the glass were like talking to the director, and I couldn't hear what they were saying, and then he would kind of key them into the sound booth and tell me, you know, can we more energy, mm. which is like the worst note ever. So that bit in, uh, lost in translation, like bigger. Right, right. Higher, you know. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Right, you and, know? I, and I stopped short of actually asking them for a line reading, which is like, you know. Which big would, no-no, would've, would've, yeah. yeah. It is a big no-no, but it would have helped. Excuse me. Man, Robert's politely PBR, dude. Yeah. That's, that's what happens when you drink these PBR. T- but I'm a, I respect the PBR, by the way. But I'm anyway. A, listen, I'm a broke graduate student, and I'm just learning more and more that you know, Noth- there's, there's no shame in buying the cheap stuff. Yeah, no, nothing but respect for the PBR. Nothing but respect. I wear plaid shirts. I got a beard. PBR is my, my shit. What, what are you trying to say, Graham? I'm trying to say that <laughs> even though I'm fighting it, I uh, f- fulfill a stereotype. That, Bit of a hipster. Bit of a British hipster, aren't you? Bit of a British hipster. I don't have tattoos, though. Me neither. I can't commit to it, but anyway. Um. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I do this. I do this voiceover, and they write me a check, and it's the most money I've ever gotten paid. It was like a half an hour of work, and I couldn't believe it. But at the how end, how much did you get paid? I got paid six hundred for that, for half an hour. For work, half an hour's work. With a half hour's notice. Dude. So what I did was um, I went out and bought myself a steak because why the fuck it, not? Damn it, yeah. I earned it. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. <laughs> but. But the, the so anyway, I, I they send me the link to it so I can see like what my work actually looked like. Mm. And when I got that last take, they're all smiling and they're like, "Yeah, it's great." The director's like, "Yeah, it's great." Sounding was like, "Good job, everything's great." So I, I leave. I have my steak, and then later, like a couple weeks later, I get the I get the finished um, video, and I, I listen to myself, and I said, "Oh my god, I sound terrible. Mm. I sound like a complete moron." Mm. This is t- and, and and then I realize that. It may have worked for their purposes, mm. but it wasn't a good read, and I was not emotionally uh, engaged. Not emotionally engaged whatsoever, and I was playing an action, mm. not performing as a as a character, 
And then I, I, I had this flash of just being, I can't do voiceover advertisements. I just can't do it. I, I will do, I will read something for you all day long. Um, hand me a book. If it's an mm. academic book or a history book or whatever, I can do that forever and make it engaging. I'm actually very good at that. Mm. But playing a character, hitting some kind of emotional truth in 30 seconds to sell a product, I can't do it. And I'm yeah. also not good enough of an actor or not invested enough of an actor to commit to being a full-time voice actor like doing cartoons or cartoon voices or things like that. I would much rather read you the dictionary. Mm. So I would love to do more industrial voiceover work. Um, but I had that moment of that's that's when I really got a dose of humility of like, okay, there are people that are really, really good at this yeah, that I really admire. I'm not in that league and I'm not willing to do what it takes to get to that league. Actors have an extremely tough road. Oh and and even, even if they're phenomenal, the amount of rejection, yeah, no guarantees. I mean, to bring it back to fighting, seriously. Yeah. You might be one of the, the – what's one of the things that Anthony Quinn says? Every time he introduces himself in Requiem for a Heavyweight, he talks about how he was he was like the third-ranked heavyweight yeah. contender for 10 years. Yeah, 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 yeah. No one remembers the third-ranked guy. No, of course not. And, and it, it, you know, f- fights are uh, more than any other sport. It's, you know, based on entertainment. Um, now, that's not, necessar- not necessarily that you have to be the most entertaining fighter – because, you know, I'm 34 and I lived through the fucking Floyd Mayweather era, which was awful because... He was too good. He was too good. He was too He was too cute. But his fights were... Uh, they were not very entertaining, you know. And, you know, back to the actors thing. Like, when I was a kid, I used to value actors on the films that they were in. I'd be like, oh, that was a good act. That, that was a good film. That's a give good me an th- example. Like uh, Jack Nicholson. You know, okay. um, he had that crazy run from Easy Rider up to um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where everything that he was in was Academy Award nominated, an incredible piece of work that's going to be lionized and picked over for you know forty or fifty years. And then you know, I would look at actors in soaps in England. Soaps are really popular in England, like EastEnders and Coronation Street, and I would say, well, they're bad actors because they're in sort of what I would have considered subpar work. The truth is not that at all. My girlfriend watch watches Law and Order SVU. I can't stand the show. But you know what? The actors are really good. Christopher Maloney. Sells He's bullshit great. lines all the time. What did you ever watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Were you a fan <laughs> yes, of that show? Yeah, I was I'm I'm that generation. Yeah. Okay, so I, I was more of a charisma carpenter guy. Oh, I wasn't really into share she's, material. She's something. So you watched Angel, is what you're telling me. Yes. A little bit of Angel. Yeah. Uh I watched up through season five. Mm. Through season five. And I remember thinking that like Spike was my favorite character because he had like this sort of sex pistols, devil make hair, yeah, badass that, yeah. vampire kind of thing going on. And he was a his fighting style too. He did a lot of kind of karate style kicking and really cool mm. shit. Anyway, I remember reading these interviews because I was really into it. I'm like, oh, I gotta read about this, that, and the other. And someone was complimenting. I don't even remember the actor's name who played Spike. Sorry, whoever's listening. But uh, I'm he, sure he's really pissed off right now. I'm sure yeah. he's, he's furious. All yeah. of our British listeners and Buffy fans. Yeah. Uh, he he said, my acting is nothing. Mm. He goes. Look at Anthony Head, mm. Giles. 
he has to convincingly sell you the idea that the world is ending every episode. Yeah. And you never doubt him. Yeah. Even though it happens every, like all the time. Yeah. And he has to use these ridiculous words, and he's surrounded by a bunch of teenagers, but you never doubt how serious it is when, yeah. you, when you listen to Giles. That is acting. And there are, like, back to Spike Lee, there's a scene where um, it's, exp- it's exposition, and Adam Driver has to explain that, yes, he's Jewish, but he's not kosher. And it's basically explaining, like, his relationship to his religion and kind of, I don't know what the Judaism is, it's not a race, is it? It's 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 it's, it's a very it, tangled it, it, thing. It's there's, a there's convoluted, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, he has to explain. I mean, it's KKK. They don't like Jewish people. That's all we need to know. Mm-hmm. But he has this scene where, if you would have read it on a page, you'd be like, "You need to fucking sort that out because that's not good writing." But Adam Driver's such a high level actor that it works, mm-hmm. and that's back to what we we're saying about the magic, you know. Yeah. And it's those low-level guys. Well, not low-level, that's not fair. But the people that are in the SVU and all that sort of... You know, I bet telenovela actors are the tits. Because they do it all the time. And they know how to, to sell this this tripe, you know. And Ken Loach, who... Um, are you familiar with Ken Loach? The well, did, did he direct The Wind That Shakes the Barley? He did. Okay, he did. that's all I know about him. <laughs> well, he would often take uh, actors from soaps because they have that sort of working class authenticity mm-hmm. and he would he would put them in his films and then they would get like awards from Cannes and Venice and you know, they would get you know all the super hot shit and then they'll go back to Coronation Street or EastEnders or whatever right that's awesome yeah it's fantastic and you know through the film school and through learning how to make films and learning about the nuts and bolts and how we get there um those actors that I would, you know, when I was younger, thought, well, well, they're in bad films, so they're bad actors. Like, I have a tremendous amount of respect for them. And, you know, they're the real magicians. They're, they do the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Cause they're th- difficult th- to deal with, but, you know, good for them. Well, I think that you also, um, this is something I've talked to Tim Ashby a lot mm. about, is that your creative types, if they really, really care about it, are, are mm. on the edge you're between kind of like order and chaos if mm. you because chaos is where you find the great ideas but you have to deal with all the nonsense surrounding it yes absolutely. which is very difficult yeah and so this is i mean you can use that as a way to explain why you have these brilliant brilliant performers who are just drug addicted completely ir- irrational erratic all over the place but my god do they give you gold mm. and that's why like like the people that are really doing it, like when the soap operas or, or SVU or whatever, like it's a job. One of the dreams of actors is to get a gig on a TV series. Yeah, get that they don't every have to, week. Well, they don't have to worry about the next gig. Yeah. Like if you're freelance, because all actors are freelance pretty much, like the studio system is active anymore, unless unless you work for, uh, you know, the Disney Channel. Yeah. Here's the shouts to Disney. <laughs> My girlfriend's from South Florida. So She worked for Disney? No, she wishes. But anyway, you know. Her mum does. Oh, I see. That's why we uh, go to Disney all the time. In the last couple of years specifically. I, so. I like The Clash a lot, by the way. <laughs> okay. anyway. uh, Pre- me too. Pre-Sandinista, but anyway. Oh, yeah. There's some good shit on Sandinista. That's a different conversation. Though. Yeah. 
Massively. <laughs> the uh, one of the things I've really noticed is sometimes people tell me like, "Oh, you'll really like so and so because they like this, this, and this, yeah. which you also enjoy." Don't you hate that? Well, you were recommended to me by a mutual friend. They're like, "Oh, you, you love Graham because he, he he likes boxing, he likes good music, um, he likes like these kind of movies." He's got a shaved head and a beard. Yeah, he's got a shaved head and a beard. You're gonna like him. He's he's great. And I'm glad that we you know we, we get along as well as we do because none of those are actually good reasons to. And 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 the funny thing is, because <laughs> I've met people with those qualities that I don't like. Yeah, and the funny thing is, and Bridget realizes this, a mutual friend of ours realizes this really well, is that yeah, you know, there's an aesthetic, in a general way. There's an aesthetic resemblance, but we're so completely different. Oh yeah. Um, no one's gonna confuse us for no, each other. I don't, I don't no, think. no, no, no. Because if they really know the both of us, it's like no, no, no. They they are really different. Well, guys. Even if you just look at our work, and I think that that's probably the biggest thing is because mm. we're both creative people as far as mm. filmmaking is concerned. But we have radically different ways of Absolutely. exploring ideas. Absolutely. Which I think is really what actually matters. I think that's true, and you know that's the. Um, not to put too, uh, not to be too flowery about it, but I mean, it really is uh, an amazing thing seeing how people like go about their stories when they do it well. It's amazing, you know. Like so, like one of my classmates, Eddie, has every single frame locked in. He's like Hitchcock. Not to compare him to Hitchcock too much, but um, he knows what's going to come in the can, so to speak. I heard that uh, he gets measurements of the rooms he's shooting in to make sure that he can do an accurate digital 3D diagram of Boom. the camera movement. That's completely true. And that actually is probably the standard for most major special effects Hollywood, like previs. Is, yeah. That's probably pretty common these I mean, days. I mean, the kid's got ambition. So oh, yeah. And, yeah but and I mean, in the, the Black Basilisk film he did, I, I, I'm still incredibly impressed with that, that piece. Yeah, a lot, a lot of... Um, I mean, he, he did a lot of the pre-production. It's his film. He deserves a lot of credit. But I was there, and Jacob was... He deserves a lot of credit for that as well. Yeah, yeah it was... It was I mean, the fact that it was the only film shot entirely black and white, 16mm. Yeah. Big balls in that kid, man. Yeah, yes, I would, I would say so. I mean, I, I, I found it a little bit disappointing, and it's something that... I mean, again, this is another conversation, but um, I love the tangibility of celluloid. And I wish we lived we, we maybe like 10 or 20 years ago where we'd actually rely on it a little bit more mm -hmm. because I think digital is it's not cheating but it would sort the men from the boys so to speak yeah. as filmmakers well that's why Christopher Nolan is way above us in the tier of film directors <laughs> he shoots IMAX which is <laughs> I mean yeah I mean he's definitely better than <laughs> I, I think it's safe to say Chris Renault's a better director than both of us. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm going to take offense to that. I mean, I mean, I would also say that I probably wouldn't. Christopher Nolan's like weird. He's a geek. Um, even um, you've seen Fallen, right? You must have Fallen, Falling, the uh, 16 millimeter film that he did. Following, following, following. I, I beg said, your pardon. I think you said following. Yeah, sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, yes, you've seen I, that. Yes, I have seen following, yeah. I, I remember watching that and I was like, this dude is such a fucking geek. <laughs> such a geek. He is. 
And the, the thing about following is because I, I don't think it's a great film. I think that it is unbelievably clever it's in great its writing though. and its structure. Mm. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I think still Memento is just a flawless film. Do you think it gives a lot uh, a more value on the third or fourth or fifth watch? Because I'm not so sure it does. Memento? Yes, in my opinion. Uh, I've seen it probably five times. I'm not so sure. I don't know. But if we're comparing his entire filmography, I, th- I think that the the, and of course the Dark Knight, you can't. I mean, yeah, that's just such a. I'm a huge Batman fan. If you haven't noticed, I've been to your apartment, mate. <laughs> I know the levels. Yeah, quite a bit of Batman paraphernalia. Yeah. Um, but I think the Prestige is a film that I go back to more often than any of his other films because that's of, interesting because the actual structure of the film is a magic trick like yeah the, like the opening monologue from Michael Caine tells you exactly what the film is mm. and then the film is structured based on what Michael Caine tells you mm. and that and I've read the book by Christopher Priest and they did it better than the source material and with just pizzazz mm. the only thing I don't like about the prestige is the credit music because they used the song uh, from Tom York's uh, solo debut and I was like why the hell am I listening to, to Tom York right now yeah like I didn't like that album very much actually I'm a big not a bit I mean uh, you know when someone says I'm a big Radiohead fan or a big Tom York fan it's like yeah well you like music then <laughs> so it's kind of a redundant <laughs> thing to say um, but yeah no I agree with that uh, Prestige is actually the one that I don't know quite as well I've not seen Interstellar I mean, I will say this about Christopher Nolan is he tends to get a rap for being a bit too clinical. Yes, um, and, I, bit and I think that that's that's a that is a completely fair. It's de- definitely a fair criticism. Um, well, if you look at his logo for his production <coughs> company, Syncope Productions, mm. it's it's the title coming out of a maze. Mm. So he's, he's telling you right there that the kind of stories he wants to make are where there are all these twists and turns and it's very mechanical yeah. and it's all set up like clockwork. Yeah. He did an entire film, um, uh, a documentary about the Quay brothers. You from, are you aware of that? No, no. Do you know the Quay brothers? No. They're, um, they do stop motion animation. Mm. And if you just look up Q-U-A-Y, I think is how it's spelled. Look up Quay brothers and just watch some of their work. It is bizarre. It is surreal. It is all stop motion, weird little puppets doing weird things in this very mechanical clockwork style thing. Nolan's a huge fan of theirs and did a short documentary about their work. Mm. And when you know that, that that's what he chose to make a little documentary about for like a Blu-ray box set, not a theatrical release. Mm. He decided to make a film about these guys. And you see their work, you're like, oh, that's how he makes films. Yeah, right. It's all about pieces moving and gears intersecting mm. and everything coming to this particular conclusion. So how did you feel about, oh, God, well, this is um, Dunkirk. Dunkirk. How, how, did, you how feel did I feel about Dunkirk? I've only seen it once. I saw the 35 millimeter print when I was in Denver, yeah. which was pretty cool. I begged them to let me in the projectionist booth to just look at it. and they. Oh, you re- did that? Oh, I, oh. I asked every employee on three different occasions if they'd let me in and I told them I'm like well uh, you know I'm working with High Noon Productions in Denver and I'm um, a film student at this. I, I did I put on a collared shirt at one point and just went you know hi my name is Robert <laughs> Kathan I'm a filmmaker did not work they all said uh, we are under strict instructions to let no one in the booth but the projectionist and the person that came 
to Denver mm. to teach him how to do it. And you had the balls to be like, can I be in there? And I well? said, so well, I, I don't see what the problem is. Like, why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> so that failed miserably. So I watched that film. And this is a, a side effect of how much time I've spent really digging into sound design. Like lately, mm. in, the la- in the last year, I've just gotten, I've become so aware of production design um, when it comes to sound. To the point where now I listen to metal albums by my favorite producers, mm. not necessarily by my favorite bands. Mm. That That's the is, level I'm getting yeah. to with the geekiness. So now I can hear things that are driving the story that I never heard before. And Dunkirk is all based off of the rhythm of a stopwatch. Yeah. And I knew that going in because I watched some interviews like, oh, it's all about time. And I'm like, okay, cool. What's, what's, uh, you know, what's he going to do with this? And then I couldn't unhear it because it just saturated the entire film. Mm. And I wasn't able to be fully immersed in the experience because of how much, how aware I was of the sound design. I I was thinking with Dunkirk specifically because there's such a um, the end where the, the kid is reading the newspaper and they're all worried about how they're going to be received when they get back to um, back to Blighty as we call it. And oh, I'm um, sorry, what do you call it? Blighty. That's what is that? Know. That's Britain. Oh, is it? Blighty. Okay. Um, you know, and it seemed really emotional. You know, which was I I, I thought like kind of. Not a, not, not a normal Nolan move um, I actually found Dunkirk quite a tough experience actually I, I actually was quite moved by it because we were that close we were that close to the whole thing falling apart you know you know it's been 70 80 years or something like that and so we live in this reality where you know we won the war you know right but when I watched that film and you know I have both sides of my family that that fought in that war um, I don't buy the Nolan clinicism cold clinicism at all and you know don't get me wrong as a filmmaker I I think that the um, the the, the time thing works Mm -hmm. I think it works pretty effectively because you have the Tom Hardy storyline you have the um, the, the ships coming out from Kent, and then you yeah. have the, the the lads in the you know they have to be there for a couple of days, and I think it was very effective. But actually, I found it incredibly moving. How did you get into boxing? Um, well, is it more of a uh, so in 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 England or the UK, um, boxing is much more a part of the um, sort of sport tapestry, you know. So we have football, soccer. Which is by far number one, which is like an Uber sport. What's your team? Um, I'm a Spurs fan usually, Tottenham, but uh, I haven't really followed them very closely for a long time. Okay. But um, and then you have um, the sort of colonial sports like rugby and cricket, which uh, colonial meaning that that's something you exported to India and South Africa and, South or and Australia, Africa, and, right, and cool. you know the the best of uh, the, the the people that do the best tend to be the ex-colony. Uh, countries like New Zealand are kind of like the Brazil of of rugby. Really? Yeah, oh, absolutely. The New Zealand are even their worst team will still beat everyone. Wow. You know? They are incredible. I think that's partly to do with the Maori uh, or the um, 
what are my Kiwi friends call it? Maori. Call it Maori, not not Ma- Maori. 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 They definitely don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have the, co- the the sort of colony sports like cricket and rugby, but um, boxing has always been sort of around there. So when I was a kid, um, boxing was always fairly popular. Like Prince Nassim, do you know who that guy is? Um, he was the big whoop when I was a kid. Um, it's it's much more a part of the sporting tapestry. Um, I, I got into it a lot more this past five or six years because um, as soon as you understand the, like the weight divisions and what they di- what they offer you and things like that, and then through wanting to tell stories, boxing is an extremely nutritious sport because of the characters. As I said earlier in the in in the podcast, like. They're just fascinating. They're just fascinating people because they choose to be in a ring and they take punishment to give punishment. And, you know, it, you know, people think it's a thuggish thing, but it really isn't. It, it isn't an athletic en- endeavor. And so um, it's, it's partly because of my own interest, but also boxing is basically more popular in England and it's not in America. And I find that very disappointing. Yeah. Uh, so, did you start off like w- when did you put first put on the gloves? Oh, I was twenty nine. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Um, so you were in Korea. I got, yeah, I got bored of running. How could you get bored of running? <laughs> well, I got to the stage where I could do half marathons. Not very well, but I could do a half marathon and. and um, I wanted to hit sh- hit some shit, you know, and I wanted to learn how to hit stuff. And I was really fortunate because the city I was living in, the guy that was running the boxing gym was an ex-Olympian. Oh, wow. In 96, he was the weight division above Mayweather. So he was around Floyd Mayweather in, in, in the Olympics and um, walked in there. He uh, put me out um, opposite a mirror and he made me bounce for 10 rounds 30 minutes just just jump on the spot and then I did that for half an hour and he said okay you've passed so you, you come back tomorrow then you'll bounce forward and then back so I did that for 30 minutes he says okay you've passed the test tomorrow you come in and then you'll throw a, a jab out when you jump forward so you made me do that for half an hour he's like okay you passed that test then do the one two and then he he gave you this progression and then eventually you hit pads and then you you realize actually what it is like to punch people don't realize what punching is it's not just throwing an arm out you have to actually put your your hips into it your hips into it you have to set it up you have to drive it's people have no idea yeah none at all and then three months later you're in a ring (laughs) then you're opposite a guy and the guy wants to take you you know you you got the the head guard and 14 ounce gloves so you know the chances are you're not really going to get scrapped up too badly but you know catches you wrong it's going to hurt particularly in the gut Mm -hmm. um and then you you learn how to move around a ring and then you get addicted to it and oh i loved it loved it I was sort of defined by it for a really long time did you time. have any fights no fights just sparring which is fighting but 
not like you know I don't have a record or anything so, like that so you were a boxing fan before you ever decided to yeah. actually give it a shot yeah absolutely and yeah. that changed I'm sure your perspective entirely well you know you talk, you know, you're talking about like you do BJJ now mm-hmm. and as soon as you've done like a, what three or four months of it now I mean, that's a generous way of putting it. It's been off and on for three months. Okay, but you, you, you've you learned a couple of things that you didn't know before, right? Yes. Okay, so now you, when you watch MMA or any BJJ, you, you understand how difficult it is to, to do what they do. Yeah, well, it, it's like learning a new language. Yeah. In fact, it, that is what it is. It, it's learning a physical language. It, it's learning how to tie things together. It's learning what doesn't work, what does work. It, you're learning your limitations. I mean, the first time I rolled, I, I pulled a muscle. And I was out for two weeks. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's just, and it's, so you learn, okay, I can't be an idiot Mm. in there and just throw all my energy into trying to throw this guy off of me or I'm going to hurt myself, so i got to be smart about it. So it becomes a problem-solving game, not a a heroic effort game. Right, and that was the thing that I learned uh, through sparring was the first time I sparred someone that was at my level, he was scared, and so he went after me. And so I had to get used to the idea of someone standing in front of me and throwing a punch and not immediately clamming up and going to the ropes and making sure I was okay. I had to be comfortable with the guy throwing a punch at me, looking at him throwing a punch, move a couple of inches away and then throwing it back. Now that's a very simple thing and it looks simple, but it's it takes simple to years. describe. Yeah. But it takes years to be actually comfortable with mm-hmm. someone throwing punches at you. Um, you know, when you were rolling, you probably went hard because well, pa- why not? sets in. It becomes yeah. like, light. it's amazing how that switch gets turned on mm. of like, oh, this guy's trying to hurt me. I'm going to do everything possible mm. to keep that from happening. And you press the panic button, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, and that's been a, a big problem with me, especially with like, you know, because I, I used to be really heavily into powerlifting mm. and just years of not listening to my body I'm suffering from that now yeah uh, happens which, in the 30s oh my goodness yeah it catches up to you dude I play soccer like once a week and for three or four days afterwards I'm just I can't walk <laughs> tomorrow's gonna be awful how does that work at OU you just like call a bunch of people and go hey let's go to ball and it's all the Europeans and the Middle Easterns we all just get together and, and, and play mm-hmm. um, yeah they this is, you know, we we're talking about America, the perceptions of America. There's this idea that Americans don't like, as you guys call it, soccer. It's bullshit. You love it. Like Americans love sport. It doesn't matter what sport they're doing. They mm-hmm. love it. I mean, look at America and the Summer Olympics. Who clears up in the Summer Olympics? America. Or the Russians, mm-hmm. possibly. Right. But um, America is a great sport-loving country. You just love the wrong sports too much. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, American football. Oh, forget about it. I can't stand it. And that's a fair judgment, um, I would say. Uh, It was really cool, though, last year when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. uh, They're the Philly team? Yes. Right, okay. And that's that's a special that was a special moment because the Eagles have never won the Super Bowl. It was the first time ever 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 ever. ever. Oh wow. So before the before the Super Bowl was founded, the Eagles won a okay. Eagles is what mm. people call them. Hometown we call them the Eagles. Oh really? It's a little bit different. So the Eagles had won the championship a couple of times mm. before the Super Bowl was a thing. Mm. But as soon as that started, the Green Bay Packers I think won the first couple. 
my little brother's probably going to give me a really hard time about not knowing all the history. But last year, uh, which was a really rough year politically for the NFL with the kneeling and with Colin Kaepernick, mm-hmm. and it became this huge media firestorm and people stopped watching and the stadiums are empty. But in the middle of all this, the Eagles... Fascinating, though. That whole, that whole shit was really interesting. It's well, It shows just how, how tied together everything is. How Yeah, it's not fair, is it? It's not fair for the fans. No, and also... Um, my personal opinion about the whole Colin Kaepernick thing was that they fucked up putting the national anthem in that sport in the first place. The, the way it was... Because before all that controversy happened, like, that wasn't part of it. Yeah. And then they made it part of it, and then someone decided to make a statement. Which and, is fair. Which is complete. It's America. You're, yeah. That's... Th- th- then this is coming, coming right. back to yeah. America. This yeah. is my thing, where it's like, you don't... Re- like, we don't have this homogenous society. Mm. The beautiful thing about freedom of speech in America is that all of these viewpoints are given time. Mm. And, and I, I mean... I'm just gonna say it. Like I think Colin Kaepernick should be able to do whatever the hell he wants. Absolutely, I agree completely. And I also feel that if his team and the league aren't happy with it, that they should be able to do whatever they want. Yeah. I, I mean, I really believe in freedom that strongly. Uh, so in the middle of all this, the Eagles win the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like I'm happy about just, this. It's just because I didn't watch a single game the whole season and Carson Wentz lives a mile down the road from my mother the, the quarterback who injured mm. himself right before the Super Bowl oh right 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 and my brother Asher is a huge Eagles fan uh, my uncle my late uncle is a huge Eagles fan it's like it's like a Cathern thing and uh, so after we, you know, we're shooting Calliope we're shooting mm. at the Cider House I remember because um, your actress was supporting the other team whoever they were no she was supporting the Eagles her boyfriend was supporting the Patriots right 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 oh the Patriots were in there Fuck Massachusetts. So you've That's, got. Yeah. So you've got. You've I, I understand got, that much. You've got the Patriots, and then you've got the Eagles. Yeah. Philadelphia, Boston. These are both. Oh, blue collar. I fully understand that rivalry. These blue collar towns. Yeah. I mean, like it's it's it's. So it was one. Of the, so after anyway. So we finished shooting at Cider House, and you know we drop all the equipment off of the equipment room, and then I was uploading my footage to the drive. Well, Eric was actually. And I said, hey, I, have to drop, I had to drop someone off. I can't remember what I was doing. And I'm like, I'll, I'll be right back. And I drive past Buffalo Wild Wings, and the game is still on. Mm. And I, I've got like 30 mixed, missed text messages from my family. But are you watching this game? Mm. And so I parked outside of Buffalo Wild Wings and watched through the window like the last <laughs> five minutes of the game. Which probably took an hour, right? Because it took a little It took a little while. That's how yeah. it always happens at the end of uh, important games because they have the clock. Yeah. But uh, – I really wish I could have been in Philly when it happened because, like, my friend Josh lives in South Philly. And mm. It's like as soon as that win happens, everyone just floods the streets. And Philly, you know, Philadelphia fans are, are known for being a rough bunch. Right? Mm. They don't like you. you're getting booed even if you're the hometown hero. And it was just like huge celebration. And and I really wish I could have been there for that. Culturally speaking, do I care about football? No, no. that's that's the thing. I was rooting for Eddie Alvarez against Conor McGregor. You know? Yeah, because you were invested, right? Right. I'm, yeah. I'm like, hey, you know, Philly guy. And, and the thing is, like, I went to a, I went to an MMA event in South Philly with with Josh, and it was CFFC, which is like Caged Fighting, Caged Fury Fighting Championship, something like that. It's it's basically the like AAA version 
of fighting. So we go to this like underneath an overpass in South Philly, trash everywhere, like looks really gross. And I'm like looking at Josh thinking, are we, are we at the right place? Like mm. what the hell's going on here? So we're like, we're eating a sandwich, hanging out, we're pre-gaming in the car, you know, cracking a couple of beers. And someone comes over, you can't park here. You, you kidding me? This is like a, a deserted wasteland. Mm. No, no, this is this is event park and you got to move. So you're going to police me now? <laughs> so, yeah. so we, we park somewhere else and come back and, and it is, it is, it's the venue. Open up the door, get padded down and they're like thumping music and the huge posters of yeah. fighters and... I mean, have you been to a fight event live? I've been, I went to a UFC in Korea. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. It was great. You can't describe to people what it's like actually being at the event. Well, this is the thing, is that do you get the best angle on the fight? No. No, absolutely, absolutely not. not. Absolutely it's not. It's nothing to do with watching the fight. If you really want to see the fight properly, watch it on TV in HD, the fucking massive TV. But when your boy gets that knockout, it's it is incredible. Not yeah. even that. So we we were sitting. So one of one of Josh's trainers was fighting that night. So I was sitting with a bunch of the people at this particular uh, MMA gym. So we're right near where they walk out. Mm. And when the fog machine goes off and the lights start flashing and the music comes on and you see the fighter come out and you're like, oh, the fighter, that's impressive. But then you see all his cornermen. Mm. And the cornermen come out and they're all like cauliflower ear yeah. busted noses look like they're in their 60s covered in tattoos noses look like Brussels sprouts yeah like, and their ears as well and they yeah. look like they eat nails for breakfast yeah. and, it, it's, and, and that to me was more intense because I realized from a storytelling perspective from like a, like a archetype thing is like oh we don't have a warrior class mm. in, in normal everyday life because mm. the, the military is separate kind of it's like oh mm. they're at a military base or something we think about it, we see it on TV it's, oh, we're very separated yeah. from it but when you see people who are going into a ring where you could die and they're putting everything on the line that's when you're seeing like oh that's like what a samurai is like what one thing I thought about recently and only specifically with this fighter was Rory McDonald oh my god um, I, th I thought about this recently um, I, I heard um, a clip of his interview and I, I was teaching my class and I saw the uh, Lawler McDonald fight which is an incredible battle um, that's a hard fight to watch well, particularly the end because oh, his nose man. was shattered right and it, he just couldn't take the pain anymore and it was one of those situations where it's like normally people would consider you a bitch but in this time you earned that finish. Like, you know, you, you just couldn't take it anymore. And it was an incredible battle. But the whole time I was thinking, and I was just watching this film about the uh, First World War at the time. I was like, I want Rory McDonald to take me into battle. He's the guy. The trench is over me. It's about uh -huh. three feet over me. I've got this little revolver and a stick. Right, basically. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> this is the First World War, because no one had any idea. And I have Rory McDonald next to me. I feel safe. Yeah. That, that's the guy that's going to take me to war. Yeah. You know? Michael Bisping is, is another great example yeah, of yeah. that. Well, the yeah. I, I was listening to his recent appearance on, on Rogan. Yeah. And uh, the fact that he's half blind. Almost completely now. For his, for his last 11 fights. Mm-hmm has no depth perception, can only see out of one eye, one eye, and even that eye is is suspect. Mm. 
And, and yeah, because he can't look to the left anymore. Right, he can't look yeah. to... And, and hearing him describe that and having watched all those fights mm. is... is it, It's almost impossible to convey how impressive that is. M- Michael Bisbing is one of the examples. So have you ever, like, Googled the most elite um, army forces? I mean, no. I, I... It, you should do that. Okay. Because it benefits me. Um, so like you know the SAS like the Israeli whoever they are mm-hmm. the Brits are always the top five and it's because of people like Michael Bisping because they're so fucking tough you mean like like Navy SEALs Army Rangers yeah, exactly, exactly like you know. okay. Michael Bisping Mossad Mossad right. is Israeli isn't it I think so isn't yeah um, but Michael Bisping is a classic example of one of those guys that never heard the word no you know, um, in his last, um, well, the fight against Dan Henderson, you know, <laughs> when he took a couple of overhand rights and his eyes are out, you know, like a foot out from his, his I was eyes. holding my breath during that fight. I couldn't believe that he got back up. Yeah. Could not believe it. Yeah, because he doesn't know. Yeah, you know, it, 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 he doesn't know. <laughs> There's not, like a switch in his brain that yeah. refuses to accept defeat. It refuses to accept it. And, and it's something that my, my brother and I, law and I speak about all the time is when I was in Korea I lived in Korea for 10 years uh, I live in America now I never feel more unsafe than when I'm in England because there's always a, a Bisping around the corner <laughs> or a Carl Froch or a, a a bunch of incredibly tough people that will just be like alright mate and you're like oh fucking yeah, no, well man. if you know anything about fighting yeah first hand you're way less likely to start a fight. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I get tapped out by guys that I have 30 pounds on mm. who are 20 years older than me. Mm. And it's just, okay, I will, why would I, what, and I don't start fights to begin with, but it's just like, why would you Well, ever, I mean, you stop doing that at 21, right? You, you know? should. Yeah. I, I, I'd recommend. <laughs> I'd recommend that, Graham. Yeah. Uh, I've, never, I've never started a fight. Um, I've gotten my ass kicked a bunch of times. Yeah, I've had it a couple of times as well. And it made me desperate to learn how to fight. Mm. But it took till I was 31 to actually walk in the gym and say, hey, teach me. Yeah, I, I was about the same. I mean, England is um, it's, it's a pretty violent country. Really? Yeah, it's well, weird. Well, knife, knife violence these days from what well, I Well, I mean, it's not violent like America. I mean, you know. Me, 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 me talking to an American from Philadelphia is kind of ridiculous, but um, sort of fisticuffs violent. Mm-hmm. It, put it, up your it, dukes. Yeah, put up your dukes, that sort of stuff. It, that's that's pretty normal. And, you know, I, you, know you, 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 you take it. But it wasn't until I was in my later 20s when you realized, well, let's, let's deal with this now. <clears throat> But yeah, I stopped the idea of being in fights for a very long time ago, and it's pretty easy to get out of them because you just talk to someone and just be like, "Okay, this person's a violent individual. I'm just going to walk 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 away." It's also amazing how if you ha- have conviction in your words, that yeah, can, I almost got in a fight once in college where I was at a party with my girlfriend at the time, and there was this big frat dude burly guy yeah for the record i was also in a fraternity but it was not the same kind of fraternity you were in a frat i was 
Ah, shit, I didn't know. I was. Um, What's the story for another time? I'll give you a whole podcast talking about my paternity. Anyway, there was this, like, big, you know, corn-fed country boy. Right, right, right. um, Who, like, put his hands on my girlfriend when she was, like, he walked up behind her and it was like he wanted to dance with her or something like that and and i oh I, like in a nasty way right and i grabbing her by the waist and the ass. right yeah now since i was in the room i can only imagine that she thought it was me mm. so she starts you know kind of moving and i come over and then she notices this other guy and she moves away and i tap the guy on the shoulder and this guy's way bigger than me and i just said i think you should leave mm. are you done <laughs> mm. and he left and thank God he did, because I was not ready to fight this guy. Oh, yeah. that was. <laughs> but I just very calmly explained to yeah. him. And, of course, I mean, I have the benefit of people, like, believe me when I talk because of the cadence of my voice and timbre, which is... Definitely a part of it, yeah. It helps. But but that was a moment where, I mean, I, looking back, I'm just like, I, I can't believe I, I did that. Like, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I actually established that there was a line being crossed and I mm. wanted him to get out. So I, I asserted myself without doing it violently. And everything worked out, but like that nagged at me for a really long time. Do you know one thing I learned about being in um, certain parts of America is that before I moved here, I, I did a big uh, trip around the country, you know. Just for the hell of it? Yeah, we, we planned it for a, a couple of years, and then we did a big trip, and so we went from Minneapolis, and then we went all the way up to Boston, and then down to Virginia Beach, and then just a big, big, did a big circle around the country. And there are occasions where you you'd find yourself in kind of like a nasty area. And being British, I I didn't know I was in a bad area. So I was pretty innocent. So like a guy comes up to me, he's like, "My man, you got you got a cigarette for me or whatever." I was just like, "Yeah, that's cool." You know, if you just show you're not scared, you're instantly okay. And that yeah. was the thing. But equal, it's almost like they're testing you. Yeah, exactly. And they yeah. test you. And it was funny because I was in D.C. Uh, about six months ago. And uh, Tara and I, my girlfriend, were walking through an area of D.C. And they were like, yo, my man, you got some money for me? And I was like, I think I got a dime. And they were like, oh, yo, you from Australia? I'm like, no, I'm from England. And I gave them a dime. And then they walked away and they were like, oh, there was this funny guy from Australia. And then um, Tara was like, you charm the pants off them <laughs> just because you're not American. I was like, yeah, it's like this golden shield, you know. But it, le- it, it, it taught me a really important lesson is that whenever you're in a bad neighborhood, just don't act like you're scared. Right. And just My dad taught, taught me um, walk like you know where you're going. Yeah, exactly. That's, that, that's a really good point. Walk like you know where you're going. And if someone's mean mugging you, make eye contact. Yeah, straight at them. And, and and acknowledge, hey, you're here, I'm here, and I'm going this way. Yeah. And it's it, it's like it's such a and subtle. And it's cool. Yeah, we're cool. I'm not trying to fight. Because if you see someone, you kind of go like this. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm turning away for those who are listening because you have to be listening. We don't have cameras here. Mm. Um, if you turn away and like run across the other side of the street, I mean, if you're a man, I mean, obviously, if you're a lady, and there are all different kinds. I think of the same factors, might apply though. You know, but. Yeah, if, if you if you walk like you know where you're going, so pick a point and walk to it, even yeah. if you're lost. And then if someone's mean mugging you, you acknowledge that they exist and keep moving. Do Absolutely. your own business, and you're establishing your sphere. So that's important to know. But it does not hurt to know how to fight on top of it, <laughs> which 
which I'm now really glad that I'm finally getting a taste of. Well, I mean, it it doesn't hurt, but you, you often don't really need to know how to fight. But um, you, it helps to know like when it's it's happening and how to neutralize it. I yeah. suppose so. That is important, but um, sort of I ha- there were. It's weird because you mean you know I, I, there were fighting years for me where um, I put on the shirt, put the gel in the hair that I had. <laughs> <coughs> Do you have like a mohawk or something like that? No, no, it was just like a just, just I just sell the hair. Got it. Got and um, you know y- you were like okay, well probably going to get in a little bit of a scrap tonight and, and you know see what happens. Um, and that happens from like 18 to 21, I think. Okay. You know, usually where it happens. I think that's right, right? You know. I don't know. I, I, I can't claim to have had a, a normal um, developmental experience. There's something about fighting and there's something about martial prowess that has always been in the back of my head, probably from watching Batman, the animated series mm. when I was a kid, that I always wanted to learn how to fight. And I was always kind of stymied because um, it was, oh, no, you're, you're playing football. You're playing baseball. No, you're not going to learn how to fight. That'll make you violent. Or, you know, I don't well, want you know, to we get were, hurt. We were, we were part of that generation where in the 90s where they thought that um, cinema violence would affect us directly. Mm-hmm. When we were kids, you know. So there, there, there was probably something in, in our parents that didn't want us to do that. And uh, when I took up rugby, I played rugby for a few years. Um, my mum was not afraid but she figured um, he'll take it out in that environment right you know yeah uh, I did Tai Jitsu for a long time which is like a, a striking art um, and there was this sort of fear of like oh well we can sort of put 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 the violence in a different area because he's watching too much and stuff like that. And but, but I, I really think though, yeah, yeah, and, and that's, and that's, I'm not saying that's not a legitimate concern. Um, and I, think I, that, I don't think, yeah, anyway, yeah. But, but I think that uh, one of the things that I'm really noticing now is that people that have a positive relationship with violence yes. by studying martial arts have, have integrated a violent tendency in a productive way. Yeah, there, there are some guys at, at, at the jujitsu school I go to where um, there's a guy who's you know an uh, army veteran. He's like six foot three, three hundred pounds. He's he's a, he's a monster, power lifter, really powerful dude. And I've met some power lifters. Mm. I have wor- I've I've been around, trained with some three hundred pound guys who can throw around a ridiculous amount of weight, but they don't fight. Right. You know, when you meet the guy who can actually fight and in your, mm. because I was doing this, uh, I was at a wrestling class one day with this guy, Rob, and I, I can't even get my hands like in good position on his arms because they're so big. Mm. And, but the thing is like, he's teaching me. He's not trying to prove something. He's not trying to act all macho. He's teaching me wrestling. Mm. And that's when I realized like, I respect that guy more than the you know, world's strongest man guy because this guy has has actually fought. He's tested himself against another man. He's been in the arena, like Teddy Roosevelt talked about, mm. and he has, and he was in the army. So, like, I'm like, okay, this guy, I feel like I can learn something more than 
how to train to be a massive giant dude. I'm not saying that because I have a lot of love for the powerlifting strongman community. I'm not trying to put that down because that's a whole nother world. Mm. But there's something about being able to handle yourself in a fight that really changes the way you look at the world and the way you move through the world. That That is one of, I think it's a good way to kind of end this and I think a little bit because uh, there's always that guy that doesn't mind, mind getting hit. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like Justin Poirier, right. you know that fighter? He got into fighting not because he was a great athlete, not because he was a great boxer, not because he was a great um, grappler. He got into it because he doesn't mind getting hit. Right. And I bet you had that friend at school, because I had that friend at school, like one of my best mates back at, um, when I was at uh, college or, or high school. And he didn't mind getting hit. And that was always a talent. Yeah. That, don't you think? Yeah. You know. Absolutely. And you know, I saw him like we would, we would be in pub fights and we were all scrapping, and he'd get the, you know, his jaw would be like uh, up and down, and he didn't mind. That's a talent. Yeah. You know. And it's something you can't teach. No, the ability <laughs> to take punishment means that you can actually go further in this. And you know, some of our greatest fighters, uh, Michael Bisping, for example, is a perfectly one of those guys where didn't mind taking a strike sometimes just to get where he's going yeah and half blind while doing it oh my talk God, about the, yeah. the, the, the stones on that guy I, yeah i just i still am, am unbelievably impressed yeah absolutely and i there, there's always that guy that knew he didn't mind walking into the fire mm-hmm. it's fascinating to and me. you can't you can't take that take that away from someone no absolutely and there are a lot of people that need to get punched in the face and if you've gotten punched in the face, <laughs> there it teaches, it, it's, it's a hell of a lesson. It yeah. is a hell of a lesson, and it's a lesson I think that everyone, sh- everyone should have. Yeah. But uh, what do I know? I'm just a film student. I mean, we don't know anything, <laughs> but um, sometimes the old slap yeah. can work. Brings you back to reality. Brings you out of abstraction into your body. Absolutely. And God bless Michael Bisbee, <laughs> Dustin, Dustin Poirier, and all those guys that can take it. God Take bless it. Brian Ortega for having a chin of granite. Oh my God! Yeah, Brian Ortega. Yeah, what a lad! Oh what a great goodness. guy. Well, thanks for coming on the show. I really Thank appreciate. You. it. I'm really glad we got to do this. It took, took just took a year. Yeah. To actually hang out. It was a pleasure. Um, it was a pleasure. Is uh, do you have any kind of promotional material you'd like to pitch to our 20 subscribers? Uh, yeah, not none at all at this stage. <laughs> okay. I'll update you all. All right, but uh, yeah. um, it was great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, thank you for me on, man. Yeah, we'll great. do it again sometime. Excellent. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Feel free to subscribe, leave a review. You can find me on Instagram at rkodinson. I do have a Facebook page for the time being. And next time on the podcast, we'll have two gentlemen discussing 360 film production and VR. So be sure to check back. <laughs>